Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. And we're off. All right. So I want you guys to know that uh, when Kyle and I are doing these together, I very often mouth the words to uh, the intro, uh, you know, in a very goofy manner, trying to get Kyle to laugh, which he does not do. Um, But uh, Kyle is um, on vacation, much, much deserved vacation. So so you're getting me. Uh, Today will be the last episode in the Maps of Meaning series. Uh, because I promised you we'd be done in six. This is six. Um, some of you probably be very glad to hear that. Um, my brother included, who calls me on a regular basis to tell me the podcast is too heady, uh, and he skips he skips um, uh, past certain parts of the conversation. Uh, me thinks the Maps of Meaning podcasts are probably not his favorite. But fuck that guy. And uh, just kidding, love you. And um, everybody else, uh, here we go. All right, so I told you that when I was trying to get this done in six, I had I had some trouble. And uh, the the what I said on the last podcast, my strategy was going to be to finish it up is exactly what I determined to do. Um, but it worked out a little bit better than I thought. So uh, I ended up kind of wrapping up the chapter that I was on, um, skipping a few, and then finishing up with the end. But it just kind of seemed to me like it, like it. It panned out well, and the reason is that early on we talked about um, all of the myth- mythological stuff that Jordan talks about in the beginning from a personal perspective. So we're talking about our individual experiences, what our lives like, and uh, the stories we tell about our lives. And then we sort of then we sort of extrapolated all that to say, look, you know, it's not just the stories we tell about our lives, but you can see how those stories get condensed down and show up in these bigger stories, these mythological stories. So the, so the religions and the stories that our religions are based on, that they share the same sort of patterns of stories that we tell when we talk about our own lives, but they're all condensed, you know, what Jordan calls meta stories. So you guys remember us talking about that. They're all condensed and distilled down to the the most powerful components. So that's why myths are amazing stories. And when I tell you about my day, it's not an amazing story because we've condensed all the great stuff down into one fantastic story. So we did that, and we started talking about the individual uh, uh, mythological traditions we, you know, that sh- where these characters show up, the known, the unknown, the knower, chaos, order, and, uh, and the divine son, however you want to say it. We talked about all that stuff. Um, we focused a lot on, in the last episode, on, on the great mother. Um, this episode we're going to focus on 
the Divine Son. We're going to focus on the hero. You know, we talked about Marduk. We talked about Horus. We talked about Jesus and Buddha. All of these heroes from these different traditions, these meta-heroes, you might say. Um, we're going to talk about them today. And we're going to talk about them... We're going to talk about them in a way that I think the, gets to the heart of the purpose of mythology. And we talked about this in lots of different ways. On the last episode when Kyle and I were talking about these old religious icons from, from you know, uh, the Renaissance or the Middle Ages, um, I'm thinking of like primarily the Eastern Church, the Eastern Christian Church, where these pieces of art were icons that people could get um, important meaning from because at the time they weren't literate. It's not like you know, regular people could open up the Bible and read the Latin or something. It was just, it was just wasn't possible. So they had all these beautiful paintings and icons that people could see that would tell the story um, and convey the meaning. And so the idea is when we look at a symbol of a hero, whether that's a hero we're reading about in a story or the hero within ourselves, that when we think about that, there is a connection between what's possible, what kind of great things heroes are capable of doing and what you're capable of doing. And the idea of of having an icon, like a, uh, like a symbol of meditation on what a hero is, um, that that gets you, you know, by degrees, a little bit closer to the idea of recognizing your own identity with the heroes. That, hey, what this great person did, it's not outside of the realm of possibility for me. So I can be a hero. Um, I'm, I'm Batman. All right, so here we go. Um, Jordan, it's interestingly, Jordan had, at the end of Maps of Meaning, some correspondence. What I mean is letter, letters uh, that he wrote to different people, in particular his own dad, when he was in, um, I, think he was, I think he was beyond graduate school, but, but maybe not, when he was writing Maps of Meaning or starting to. So I want to I begin today by giving you an excerpt from this letter to Jordan's dad. And it's, I mean, it's... It's really nice. I mean, it's a way of humanizing Jordan, and I know, um, you know, I, I have a great deal of respect for him and um, uh, admiration, and feel like, you know, a lot of the places I was going in my own head, Jordan beat me to, you know, 30 years ago. So having introduced, been introduced to him, and getting all these answers, like getting all the, it's like getting the cheat sheet to the test or getting the Sparks notes to the book. It's like I'm getting tremendously further in my own you know, personal development because Jordan did all the work for me. So sometimes I just come across as, you know, I don't know, worshipful or something, but, um, but Jordan's just a human being like you and me, and he's got his flaws and he's talked about them in the book. I mean, we talked about in the first episode about his, his foray into communism when he was a, when he was a teenager, um, and all that, and all that sort of thing, having political ambitions and giving them up. He's just, he's just a human being. So here we go. Jordan Peterson, talking to his dad here uh, in letter, November of 1986. And, and it's interesting because Jordan is like, well, he's, he's talking to his dad. He sent a letter to his dad. He's expecting to get some sage wisdom from the old man, you might say. But what he's really doing is asking questions that are haunting him. He's just asking them to the person that, that he thinks um, might, be, might be able to help. You know, and his dad is somebody, since we're going to be talking about the hero today, um, you know, his dad is, is, is an icon. He's, he's something to emulate. He's something that, that children look up to, to their father, if, they have, if they're lucky enough to have one in the household. 
um, and uh, and learns you know a tremendous amount from him. So so in this in this excerpt, Jordan is is asking his dad. He's he's telling him about struggling with the problem of, of meaning. And the, of course, the book is called Maps of Meaning. And he's talking about the meaning of life. You know, I think that kind of most fundamental question that we all ask at, at some point. And I'm not sure anybody's answered sufficiently, but Jordan has tried to do that in Maps of Meaning. And so let's just fast forward, rewind, I should say, back to uh, 1986. And he writes this letter to his dad. It goes like this. Well, an excerpt goes like this. He said, Carl Jung has suggested that all personal problems are relevant to society because we are all so much alike and that any sufficiently profound solution to a personal problem may, if communicated, reduce the likelihood of that problem existing in anyone's experience in the future. This is, in fact, how society and the individual support one another. All right, so I'll stop there. So just a little chunk of a, le- of a letter he wrote to his dad, a personal letter, and, and he's asking about, you know, the problem of, of meaning. And he's saying here that, um, he's, he's basically saying, you know, that there are two, t- there are two types of people. They're, they're the, the types of person that learns from their mistake, which are most of us. And then there's the, the clever kind that learn from other people's mistakes. Now, learn from history, you know, the, 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 like I say, the very clever kind. Um, and he, that's what he's, that's always basically said here. He's like, look, Carl Jung has said that if you have a personal problem, that that is relevant to society. Because if you found a solution to that problem, society is likely to have, uh, many of them anyway, the same problems you have or something similar because we're all so much alike. So if you find a solution to a problem and you let other people know what that solution is, many of them are going to use that tool to solve their own goddamn problems. And, that, and wh- how is that not a great thing? To, to learn from somebody else's mistakes, to do what Jordan Peterson did for me, let's say, um, to do all this legwork that I can now just use. Um, wonderful, wonderful. Well, the reason I bring this particular passage up in this letter to his dad is because there's no doubt in my mind that this is what Jordan did when he wrote Maps of Meaning. You know, he had um, a problem. He has struggled with the problem of meaning, and he decided, look... I'm on to something as far as an answer to this. This is such a fundamental problem. What, what is the meaning of life? The reason people give up and commit suicide, the reason people you know, fade away and, and don't do anything productive with their life because they don't see the value in trying. Um, you know, all of that nihilism and, and torment that happens to so many people across the world, he's saying, look, I might have a solution to this problem. And if I do, I'm, I should share it with the world. Because anybody who happens upon it might be might be facing that problem, and if and if I if there's any truth in the fact that I've I'm, I've I've got something here, why not share that with with other people? So this is what I'm talking about. This is what Jordan was doing when he wrote Maps of Meaning, and we're going to get right to it. We're going to be talking about you and me today. We're not going to be talking about great mothers or great fathers so much. We're not going to be talking about uh, so much of the mythological abstractions. We are a little. But we're going to focus on consciousness. We're going to focus on the hero. That's you and me. Okay. All right. So first section here I'm going to call the making of a hero. So Jordan begins this way. He says, creative acts, despite their unique particulars, have an eternally identifiable structure because they always take place under the same conditions. What is known is extracted eternally from what is unknown. 
Okay, so I'm not going to beat a dead horse. We, we've, we've been here. We know this. We know that what consciousness does is go out into the unknown. It experiences something it's never experienced before, and it, and it gets something valuable from that. And, and what we said up to this point, which is really difficult to understand, but, uh, but, but I think it's true, is that the information that we extract from our experiences, we use to build the world, meaning our, our subjective world, what we see when we open our eyes and look out at, at existence, that that is colored by the experiences we've already had. Like all of the information that we have that we build this idea of reality with, um, that, that that's something we literally constructed with information we, we received from our prior experience. Um, so so he, he says that, and he also says the same thing about ourselves, that the thing you call yourself, that that is also built from those same experiences that you have. The information you get from the unknown somehow becomes yourself and the world. And that's amazing. And it's very, very mystical. Although Jordan goes through pains to make it seem like it's not, for all the reasons we've, we've mentioned before, that you know, it's hard to say anything hippy-dippy. It's hard to say anything that is not capture, capturable in, in some kind of measurement and have anybody in, in the modern scientific world take it seriously. And that includes things as insightful as the unconscious that Carl, Carl Jung brought to the, to, the, to the table that's become, you know, uh, a, a joke in, in academia, but in, you know, uh, in the certain type of uh, psychological realm, it's gold and continues to be gold. And it, and it is for us. You know, the unconscious is something that we can mine from. You know, if you don't believe me, uh, you know, pay attention to your dreams. Pay attention to your dreams and, and stop, at, stop pretending like they mean nothing and try to ask yourself what they might mean. And the answers that you come up with will astonish you if you, if you really give it an effort. All right, so we... We extract uh, known from the unknown, and then he goes on to say this. The generation of new information from contact with the unknown means the construction of experience itself. The destruction of previous modes of adaptation and representation, or previous worlds, he says, means return of, of explored territory to the unexplored condition that preceded it. And then it's restructuring in more comprehensive form. He says, this is encounter with the great and terrible mother and death and resurrection of the son and the father. So this is basically a recap of what we talked about um, in the last episode with uh, Horus and uh, Osiris and Isis from the Egyptian myth. So, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the son goes into the underworld to save his father and, brings his fa and gives his, his father his eye and comes back, restores him, and comes back and, and rules together. So you've got father who's the, the god of order and son, which is the consciousness, the thing that sees. Those forces together, um, according to the myth, is the solution. It, that that's restabilizes everything. It restabilizes the cosmos. Um, so that, that's, what, that's in the religious framing. Um, but I think what's important here is, is, is the indication that even the things that are explored and the things that are known can become unknown again. Um, and that happens very often without warning and without any, you know, um, way of kind of foreseeing or, or understanding. So the idea is that that objects are, they're that Terminator 2 substance we keep talking about. They're potential. They can become anything. And so just, just because you have, you know, some, something in, in your hand that you've, 
that you've experienced before and have thoroughly mapped out and believe you understand um, that there is always the possibility that something changes and all the things you thought you understood, you don't. And the thing you're holding in your hand is a monster all of a sudden. It's something that, you, that you're afraid, afraid of because you don't know what it is. Um, I know that's uh, abstract, but let's push through. And then Jordan says this. He says, if all great kings would bow voluntarily to the figure of the hero, there would be no more reason for war. And that's a hell of a statement. Um, anything that solves the problem of war is something that should be taken seriously. This is literally one sentence, but, you know, Jordan was obsessed in his younger years with uh, the catastrophes of war and what happened, you know, uh, in the Cold War and in the Second World War. And, um, you know, and, and all of the tragedies of uh, the failed communist experiments in um, Europe and Asia. So he's obsessed with that. So this statement for him is very important. He's saying... He's saying, I've always been very concerned about the possibility that human beings can blow this whole thing up, that, you know, mutually assured destruction and a nuclear holocaust, that somebody could get, you know, emotional and press that button and it could end it for everyone. And that's such a terrifying idea. And here he's saying there would be no reason for war ever again if all great kings would bow voluntarily to the figure of the hero. And so all great kings here is, um, is symbolic. You know, he, he's basically saying if, if all historical world leaders and all the, all the kings and emperors that have ever lived, if all of those people would have, would have bowed to the figure of the hero, if they would have put the hero above themselves in the hierarchy, this idea um, uh, of something, you know, heroic that you might become, if they would have been subservient to the idea of the hero, that there would be no need for war, that we wouldn't have that conflict. So I, 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 what, do you, what do you suppose that means? You know, I mean, I don't exactly know. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of something that he said um, earlier that we did talk about, which is, which is the idea that, uh, that the polytheistic gods, that all these cultures in, in the ancient world that had all of these gods, that they, that they eventually organized the gods with a in a hierarchy, and who whatever god was on top of that hierarchy, he was the king of the gods. He run he ran the show, and and whatever he represented was the force that was the most valuable to the people. So if it was the god of order, let's say Zeus or something, that order and stability and a civilization are very important, and that's why you would put the god of order at the top of the hierarchy, maybe. Um, and you might remember when we talked about the Mesopotamian story of Marduk and the Egyptian story of Horus, they put the hero, Marduk and Horus, at the top of the hierarchy. And those gods were symbols of consciousness. So Horus is the, the hawk, the all-seeing eye, the hawk that can see everything. He sees everything. You know, that's the way little kids think of Santa Claus or God, the all-seeing, the thing that, that, that experiences everything, that knows everything. That's consciousness. Now, I'm not saying that that that's all together in one body, one, one supernatural body that we call God, it's fractured out and split among, uh, you know, uh, billions of human beings, right, and, and all kinds of other living creatures. Um, so, uh, so the idea of having a hierarchy and having consciousness on top of it, this, I think, is, is the illusion. He's saying that if, if all great kings put, put you know, if, if, if all conscious creatures put this goal 
this object of meditation as the hero at the top of the hierarchy, and every, everybody was striving to become the hero, that there would be no more conflict, there would be no more war. Um, and that's and that's difficult to understand, uh, especially you know I'm a man and I and you know we're we're a competitive group and we uh, and we like um, challenging each other and and uh, you know the whole pecking order thing that's that's legit. Um, but we have but somebody has to be on top, and um, you know I, I can see obviously there being quote unquote war or aggression as you're trying to figure out who goes on top. But once you have the hierarchy established, once the pecking order is there and the top dog is on top, there's no more war, guys. Um, and the hero, the hero is not somebody that, uh, well, here, let's, let's, uh, let's save that for just a bit here. Um, all right, so. So Jordan says, the exploratory hero, mankind's savior, cuts the primordial chaos into pieces and makes the world, rescues his dead father from the underworld and revives him and organizes the nobles occupying his kingdom into an effective, flexible, and dynamic hierarchy. And that's everything we just said. Um, you know, the hero is the person that makes the world, uh, like, we, like we just talked about, from the experiences that it has. And I'm not saying it makes the world from scratch, although I'm not ruling that out. But it does make the world something more, something new, something that it wasn't before the hero did the heroic thing. So in that way, it's, it's making the world new. He rescues his father from the underworld. We talked about that. That's revivifying the culture. That's taking the things that worked from, from our ancestors and breathing new life into them so that people can still use them. Um, the idea that, uh, that Nietzsche brought up about the death of God that we, we talk about from time to time, um, you know, this is, this is kind of what, he's, what the hero is combating against. So if people believe that God is dead, like Nietzsche said, then what they're saying is that there isn't any life or value in our culture anymore. The things that we inherited from our, from our ancestors, the people that are dead that came before us, that, that, that whatever valuable thing that helped them guide their lives it doesn't have value to us anymore. Um, you know, we can see that in this modern secular world. We can see that everywhere we look. People dismissing religion and mythology as, as worthless. It's children's stories. Um, it's, and, it's, and it's nonsense. Uh, and then here he says, um, oh, and, and again, just he talks about revivifying the culture. So when you go down into the underworld and you bring back your dead father, what the idea there is to breathe new life into the old tradition. Give the people who are alive a reason to believe that it's valuable again. Give them a reason to use that again. Um, and then he's, he also says that, the, uh, that he or, the hero organizes the nobles occupying his kingdom into a hierarchy. Um, and again, from the mythological perspective, the nobles here are the other instincts, you know, the other um, interpersonal forces that, we're, that we all have, uh, you know, our instincts that are, that are vying for, you know, primacy. Um, you know, the part of us that, the part of us that wants to eat, the part of us that wants to reproduce, the part of us that wants to impress people, all of these, whatever, these, these psychological forces are competing within, our, within ourselves all the time. He's saying that, that that the hero organizes those, uh, tames those forces by putting them in a hierarchy where they're s subordinate to something, something better, something higher. And that thing is that thing is consciousness. It's uh, really the same thing as the hero, and that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna see as we're as we're uh, going through this.
All right, so he says, active adaptation. No, hold on, let me, I'm skipping one here. He says, um, accommodation to new information is an integral part of the exploratory process. An anomaly has not been processed until the pre-existent interpretive schemas have been reconfigured to take its presence into account. Uh, every explorer is therefore, by necessity, a revolutionary, and every successful revolutionary is a peacemaker. And so this is interesting. He's basically saying that the hero is going into the unknown and bringing new information, and that new information is valuable, potentially, but also dangerous, potentially, right? I mean, you're not going to uh, shake things up at the highest level um, by, you know... Uh, you're not going to be able to do that successfully unless you can integrate that new piece of information into the system that already exists. You guys, you guys I mean, this has all happened to us. So if you uh, lose your job or, you, you know, you, you split with your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend or something like as that happens, you have to kind of reevaluate yourself and where you're going and what your values are, what your goals are. And usually what we do is we put that, we spin it so that we can make it um, – palatable for ourselves like hey i'm i've lost my lover let's say um oh but you know what there's all these reasons why i wasn't happy with her anyway and you know there's all these other opportunities of a better you know companion that i might i might have access to now that i i'm free of the burden of this other one that's how we spin it to ourselves that's what i mean we're integrating this new information into our story and it changes our story um you know, if you, if you lose your job, you know, you're going to say something like, oh, well, I, you know, at least I gained these valuable skills while I was there. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't they didn't they didn't uh, respect me or value me anyway. And, and my next job will, will, you know, pay better or be the be the next step in the direction I want to move in or whatever it is. We spin it. And Jordan talked about that in the beginning part of the book a lot. He said we can we can spin things, um, come up with a new story for ourselves and what that does is it eases all the negative emotion in our lives. It makes us feel like, you know, I don't have to be so anxious anymore. I don't have to be so sad anymore because I've been able to spin this story and integrate this new piece of information, even if that information is negative to me. Like, hey, you weren't a very, you weren't, you weren't a very attentive uh, boyfriend to your girlfriend. You know, you, you um, weren't a very good employee. You, you were slacking off. You know, to learn that about yourself sometimes feels like a slap in the face. Uh, but you integrate that back into your story in a useful way, and suddenly you, suddenly you become the hero. You rise from the ashes like the phoenix and become something new. And I made a note here that it reminded me of, uh, it reminded me of, of what Einstein's theory of gravity did to Newton's. You know, we had a we had a Newtonian theory that was working just fine. Einstein comes in and shakes things up and says that Newton was not only wrong. But, you know, look at it this way, we can, we can explain a lot more than what Newton explained. So what did, we, what did Einstein do? He took new information that Newton didn't have about quantum mechanics and about light, and he incorporated it into a theory of gravity uh, that, uh, that becomes a far superior um, idea to Newton's. And then, and then... And then Jordan adds that everybody who does something like that, every hero who brings new information into the story, is a revolutionary. Why? Because you're changing the story. Not everybody's going to like that necessarily. And then every successful revolutionary, he says, is a peacemaker. What does that mean? 
Well, if you're somebody who's bringing new information um, to, to, to shake things up and revolutionize, not everyone's going to be happy with that, like we said. Um, the stability of that society doesn't continue unless you integrate that piece, unless you take that piece of information into the story in a way that everybody can get, can get along with. That's the peacemaker part. It's the reconfiguring of the story in a way that everybody everybody can go with. That's the peacemaking part. All right, so he says, active adaptation precedes abstracted comprehension of the basis for adaptation. He says, this is necessarily the case because we are more complex than we understand, as is the world to which we must adjust ourselves. All right, this is interesting. So he says, active adaptation precedes, it goes before abstracted comprehension, meaning... I'm going to adapt to something before I, I have I've made sense of what I'm adapting to or why. And you can think about this like children learn to behave before they can describe the reasons for their behavior. If children are learning the rules of society, of polite society, to their pleases and thank yous, their manners, uh, you know, regulating their aggression, learning a game, all of that stuff. Uh, children learn, they, they learn to do that before they understand what, they're, what, what it is they're doing. Or at least they can't explain to you what it is they're doing. They just sort of know it. And this is that embodiment that we talked about before. Um, so, And he, he's basically saying, look, we have to adapt to things we don't understand. And the reason is that we are more complex and the world is more complex than we understand. So if we couldn't adapt to things we can't understand, that we would go the way of the dinosaur. Instead, we have this ability to adapt to things we don't understand. What in the world does that mean? I mean, it's amazing. There's something about the world transforming and our adaptation to it that allows us to be the match of nature. It's amazing. All right. So Jordan says, first we act. Afterwards, we envision the pattern that constitutes our actions. Then we use the pattern to guide our actions. This is just another way of him showing you how we act first, and then we determine after sufficient time studying our actions what the heck we're doing and why. We act first, then we understand. That is interesting. It's interesting for a lot of reasons. It makes me think of, it makes me think of the Big Bang, you know, the beginning of everything. Um, because we talk so much about consciousness, and, and I believe, from the mystic perspective anyway, that consciousness is maybe the, maybe the trigger of that Big Bang or, or, or the Big Bang itself, that there's something um, mystical about the idea of the Big Bang. Um, and the idea that the Big Bang would occur before consciousness could understand what it, what it had done, right? If consciousness is God and consciousness is the thing that's blowing up, you know, the Big Bang, that that action is happening before it even understands, uh, and I say it like consciousness with a capital C, consciousness as God, before it understands exactly what it's done. Um, I don't know what that means exactly when we when, I, when you think about it that way, like consciousness with a capital C, but it's interesting. That's might something we'll have to think about more. All right, he goes on to say, first comes the action pattern guided by instinct shaped without conscious realization. Then comes the capacity to imagine the end toward which behavior should be directed. 
Information generated from the observation of behavior provides the basis for constructing fantasies about such ends. Actions that satisfy emotions have a pattern. Abstraction allows us to represent and duplicate that pattern as an end. The highest level abstractions, therefore, allow us to represent the most universally applicable behavioral pattern, that characterizing the hero, who eternally turns the unknown into something secure and beneficial, who eternally reconstructs the secure and beneficial when it has degenerated into tyranny. So there's a lot here. But I think what's interesting is this. He says that, you know, we have to act first before we understand, and those actions are guided by our instincts. So we act in an instinctual way, and we understand that. It's like there are things we do that we don't exactly try to do. They're just sort of a part of us. They're instincts, like a, like a baby's um, suckling motions or, or, you know, gripping motions or... Um, you know, th- things like that. Like, like uh, we, I used an example before about a chicken. A chicken will run away from the shadow of a hawk. If you put a, ha- a shadow of a hawk over, it, over top of its head, it sees that shadow, it will, it will hide. But it, a chick, a baby chick will do that. Um, that's never seen a hawk before. That kind of thing. There are instincts that we don't understand exactly. And uh, he says that they allow us to act so that we can see how we're acting. But once we see how we're acting, we can sort of decide what actions are better than others. So that's why he says we can determine kind of how we should act at that point, because then we can see what works and what doesn't work, what we like and we don't like. When the more actions we see, the more, the more of the, of the proper pattern we can pull out of it. It's like, oh no, I don't like actions like this. I like actions like that. And it's finding out what the like is like that's important. And he says, information generated from the observations of behavior provides the basis for, construct- for constructing fantasies about such ends. So, so once you've seen enough actions, you can then kind of fantasize about potential future actions in your head. You don't even have to see them happening. You can kind of imagine them happening. So it's interesting. And then he says that the instinct that's the most fundamental, that's behind our actions, there might be many, but the one that's the most fundamental is the, is the pattern of the hero. He says it's the highest level abstraction um, it, it, that characterizes the hero. And what, it, what that instinct is, the heroic instinct, is the instinct to go into the unknown and to make something known out of it. That is our most, that is our most deeply fundamental instinct. Amazing. Um, and following that instinct to Jordan's point, that's the process that eternally reconstructs the secure and beneficial when it has degenerated into tyranny. When order f- falls apart into chaos, consciousness is the hero that comes back and reestablishes the order. When the savages come and they burn down the, the city walls, the hero is the person that goes and builds them back up. Something like that. All right, Jordan says, The myth of the hero has come to represent the essential nature of human possibility. The hero myth provides the structure that governs, but does not determine the general course of history, expresses one fundamental preconception in a thousand different ways. And that's exactly it. It's every hero story you've ever seen, read, you know, seen on TV, the superheroes, the, um, you know, the, uh, the people that sacrifice, that, that you admire for their sacrifice, all of those things, the, the examples that you see of a hero, there are a million, thousand different ways of, of being a hero. 
and the pattern, the common pattern that's behind all of those different heroes, that, that he says, is the essential nature of human possibility. Amazing. So we're all latent heroes. We could become a hero. Maybe we have, maybe we have already, maybe many times in our lives. And we can again. And then he says, um, the most fundamental uh, presumption of the myth of the hero is that the nature of human experience can be, should be, improved by voluntary alteration of individual human attitude and action. And here we see that word voluntary again popping up. Um, and we, we talked about this before, but, but the idea of a, of a voluntary um, encounter with the unknown, that that is the proper way of, of uh, behaving. It's the proper way of, of encountering chaos voluntarily. Um, and Jordan, Jordan uses this uh, really powerful example from his psychology practice where he talks about people that have, um, you know, un, uh, irrational fears like uh, uh, a phobia for elevators. He uses this example. So you've got somebody who's afraid of elevators, and if you want to get them over the fear uh, of, of an elevator, you have to get them to spend more time you know, w around elevators, looking at them, getting closer to them, staying inside them r until they realize there's nothing scary there. It's actually quite boring. Not a lot can go wrong. You know, once they have all of that information that the fear subsides and then they can get over their phobia. So the point he makes is that you could grab that person and dr drag them kicking and screaming into an elevator against their will. And if you do that, they'll, they'll have the same time that they spent in the elevator, you know, the same experience, basically. But because it wasn't voluntary, those people do not get better. They do not get better because it wasn't voluntary. The person makes the choice, and as a psychologist, you help them, you support them, and they make the choice to face the fear themselves, then it's dramatically powerful at making them better. And this is, this is so important. Just like uh, the, the story of Jesus that we talked about uh, in the last episode, that he, that he voluntarily went to the cross, that he could have escaped. In fact, a lot of the, uh, um, you know, the people and the priesthood and the, um, uh, the Roman authorities that were there in first century Palestine would have, would have much preferred it if Jesus would have just escaped with his apostles and made no trouble any longer. Um, instead, he, uh, he went voluntarily to the cross. So there's something important about it being voluntary, that the heroic act must be voluntary, something that you choose to do. And so that's on you, and it's on me. Do you want to be a hero? You can be, right? That's the, that's the uh, pinnacle of human possibility, like Jordan said, the essential nature of human possibility but it's on you. You have to make that choice. And you can't become the hero accidentally. All right. This next section I call the sincerest form of flattery. All right, here we go. Jordan says, Interesting or admirable behaviors engender imitation and description. People like, people like to imitate things that they admire, and they like to describe them, to talk about them. Um, he goes on to say, such imitation and description might first be of an interesting or admirable behavior, but is later of the class of interesting and admirable behaviors. Um, 
so I don't remember if I told this story when I had my buddy Josh on the podcast, but Josh's brother-in-law, when we were kids, you know, he's like five years older than us. And uh, if you can imagine being teenagers, five years difference is a big difference. Uh, my, my brother's five years older than me, and, uh, you know, wanting to hang out with him and his friends was like, good luck. You know, he, he had no interest in the little children hanging around, you know, with the big boys. So so Josh's brother-in-law uh, was not like that. He, he um, kind of went out of his way to um to show to show me interest and kindness and uh you know to do things with uh with josh and i and kind of made us feel like we're part of the you know part of the part of the you know the gang and it was it was really meaningful to me and one of the things that he did uh shout out to keith is um he uh gave uh josh and i some money from his own pocket um took us got us up early took us to a flea market and we just you know, we just kids. We just went around and, you know, spent money on nonsense, and we had a, we had a great time. But it was the generosity, you know. And we talked about, you know, Kyle and I both kind of grew up with with not a lot of means. So somebody gave me money from his pocket, and this isn't mommy's money or daddy's money, but Keith's own money, and uh, made the choice to take us with him. So the reason I tell you all this is because I must have been, you know, twelve or thirteen years old or fourteen years old or something, and. And I remember it vividly. It made a huge impression on me. In fact, it is something that I have imitated in my life. That level of kindness and generosity is something that I've imitated in my life because of the experience, and probably one he doesn't even remember or thought it was trivial. It was not trivial to me. So that was a heroic act. That was something that I consider part of my personal development. And whenever I think about it, uh, whenever I, I, you know, act that way, I think about Keith. I think about Keith. Um, so he says, Jordan's saying that that admirable behavior is the thing initially that strikes you. But then it's the class of all of those types of behaviors. It's abstracting that out. It's not just the individual hero. It's, it's what's common among all heroes. So it's the pattern that makes you a hero. Um, so Jordan says the class is then imitated as a general guide to specific actions, is re-described, re-distilled, and imitated once again. The image of the hero, step by step, becomes ever clearer and ever more broadly applicable. So this is also interesting. This is like, um, like I would imitate the the behaviors that Keith showed me. You know, this kindness and, and uh, you know, not caring, not, not caring that, you know, he's much older than me and, and doesn't want to be seen hanging out with a little kid, you know, like putting that aside and being kind and generous to somebody, you know, for no, no other reason than, than, you know, to, to bring them joy of some kind or other. That that is something that, that I could imitate in exactly the way that Keith did, which was to give me money and take me someplace. I can do that to somebody else. But I could also realize that that behavior is abstracted and could be all sorts of other things. It might not be just giving money. It might be giving time. It might be giving, you know, uh, whatever, um, you know, a, a lesson of some kind, a, you know, uh, what, I don't know what you might give, but lots of things. It doesn't just have to be money. Um, and then and then to spend time with, it's not just about taking somebody to the specifically the flea market, but it could be spending time with somebody, taking them somewhere, you know, uh, show your lady she's special, man, take her out to dinner. So um, so you, you can see that there's a pattern 
to the to the kindness. There's a pattern to the generosity, and I can extract from that lots of lots of other things beyond the specific behavior that I was impressed by originally. Not only that, Jordan goes a step further. He says, he says that the action is described, like I just did it to you, redistilled and imitated again, right? So that means, so that means that the hero that Keith represented has now become the hero that I represent. So now I am this um, person carrying on this kindness in my own way, and I'm putting my own spin on it. I'm putting it in my own context, and other people are going to see me, maybe my children, maybe my friends, maybe strangers. They're going to see me do that. They're going to see the new hero that emerged from the old hero. They're going to see the Chris that emerged from the Keith in this, in this example. And every time that happens, Jordan says, the image of the hero, step by step, becomes ever clearer, ever more broadly applicable. So now every hero who comes after me is going to build on that and build on that and become more and more perfect, more and more hero-like. Um, Jordan says, the pattern of behavior characteristic of the hero is voluntary advance in the face of the dangerous and promising unknown. Generation of something value, of value as a consequence and simultaneously dissolution and reconstruction of current knowledge of current morality. Now, that last bit, that's something that, that tripped me up, and for a while, it was something I was having a hard time understanding. But uh, we talked about it a little bit, and I'll, I'll do it again here. Um, so again, Jordan's talking about the voluntary part, which is important, and facing the unknown and generating something of value. And he's saying that what that does is it, is it reconstructs our current knowledge. That's what we said before. When we're taking this new piece of information, we're integrating it into our story to make, to make the story make sense with this new information. That's the reconstruction of our current knowledge, of our current story. But then Jordan says, of our current morality. So how do we go from knowledge to morality? I mean, we know that we, know that we build ourselves and we build the world from this information that we're, that we're getting from the unknown. But how does that say anything about morality? So, so I have a note here. Why is knowledge and morality equated here? And I think it's because um, the study of human behavior reveals not just what we're doing, but why. So the why tells us what we value. So as Jordan would say, um, we're acting towards an end that we have in mind, some desired future that's better than, that we think is better than where we are now. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing anything. So the why is the moral question. See, what we value influences and guides how we act. So as we act, we change or refine what that value is. And that's what we mean when, what he means when he says morality here. So the more information we have, the more complex and sophisticated our world becomes and our self becomes. The more sophisticated our idea of right and wrong becomes based upon what we value, because that's going to change. The more information we know, our values will change as a, as a consequence. That's a, amazing. It's a really strange way of talking about morality because we don't do that usually. We talk about right or wrong, cut and dry, as though it comes to you from, from God on high, which is like what a lot of you know, religious people believe. And what Jordan is saying is, is you know, no, he says current morality. He's like morality is always changing, just like the world is always changing, just like we ourselves are always changing. It's amazing. It also reminds me of that uh, that physicist episode we talked about, where uh, 
uh, and I can't remember the physicist in particular, but how he said that the that the uh, laws of physics themselves might actually be evolving, changing, just like everything else. And that's something that the static nature of the rules, that's something that science you know, relies on. And if it's, if it's true that the laws of reality are, are changing, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, that just means all of the progress we made in science is baseless. And it's just very interesting to think about. All right. So Jordan says, the voluntary generative union of consciousness and chaos produces or revives order and cosmos. All right, so let's, uh, so let's un- unpack this or translate this from uh, Petersonian. So he says the voluntary generative union of, of consciousness and chaos. He, he's saying, look, consciousness is you. Chaos is the unknown. So when you go out into the unknown and you learn something, that that is the, the voluntary generative union that revives order and cosmos. And again, when he says order, he's talking about our day-to-day lives. When he says cosmos, he's talking about um, the meta version of the story, the, mytho- the mythological version, that it's not just consciousness that creates the order of our lives, you know, the civilization, the culture, you know, all, all that. It's not just consciousness that does that. It's also consciousness that creates all of the order that exists, that includes the stars and the planets and the orbits and the force of gravity and all of it. Amazing. All right, so Jordan says, the mythological hero... Come on. The mythological hero depicts the development of of a personality capable of facing the most extreme conditions of existence. The hero's quest or journey has been represented in mythology with the myth of the way. And it's summarized like this. A harmonious community or way of life, unexpectedly threatened by the emergence of unknown and dangerous forces. An individual of humble and princely origins rises. So I can think of some examples. You can think of Jesus, for instance, who was the son of a carpenter but also he was the son of David. So David was the king of Israel once upon a time, and Jesus is in his line. So he's humble, a carpenter, and princely in the line of David. Even Buddha. So Buddha was literally a prince, Prince Siddhartha. He was also a monk. So humble like a monk, princely like an actual prince. So you can see that our heroes, our heroes tend to have this in common. And I think this is interesting because it's the idea that consciousness is humble, earthly, material, a human being like you and I, but princely, high, you know, spiritual. Um, so, so the idea of the hero is both humble and princely. It's both heavenly and earthly, something like that. And that's what you would call Jesus. That's what you would call Buddha, at least mythologically speaking. So again, he says, an individual of humble and princely origins rises by free choice to encounter th- this threat. So voluntary, by free choice. Like we said, uh, like we said about Jesus earlier, um, he says the individual is exposed to great personal trials and risks. So, in order to become a hero, you have to be exposed to great trials and risks. This is the idea of facing the unknown. In the mythology, it's literally doing battle with a dragon. Okay, so you, you might think about, you know, like a classical version, like like Hercules from the Greek religion. If you guys 
are my age, you know the Disney, the Disney version of Hercules. But Hercules, famously, the stories about him are the 12 labors. And you might remember Hercules was a demigod. He was, you know, um, supposed to be a god, but he maybe he's part god, part, part mortal. And in order for him to become a hero, for him to become a god, he had to do these 12 labors. He had to go out and, you know, uh, have these personal trials and take risks. And they were things like slaying the hydra. You remember the hydra is the many-headed dragon. You know, do I have to say do I have to say dragon with quotes, you know, to, to bring your attention to the importance of that? Also, stealing the, the apples of Hesperides. And I'm sure I mispronounced that Greek word. Um, but the apples of Hesperides is an interesting part of Greek mythology for a lot of reasons, but it's one of those things that the gods eat, and it's, it's, it's the reason why, that, why they're immortal. So in the, uh, in the ancient Iranian religion, it was called Soma, or in the ancient Indian religion, it was called Soma. There's always this, this and sometimes people talk about it being uh, uh, an allusion to some psychedelic, and we, we've had episodes on that as well. But in the myth of the, ap- the garden, uh, there's, the, again, a tree and a garden, very much like the Garden of Eden, and the fruit, in this case apples, are forbidden. Human beings aren't supposed to eat them. Because if they do, they become gods. You remember what the Bible says, and we've talked about that. God said he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because he was afraid after they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge that they would eat from the fruit of the tree of life and become as gods. Right? So, so Hercules had to go to that garden, the Greek version. version. He had to eat that apple, um, and that's, again, the golden apple of Hesperides. Um, and apart from trials, um, personal trials and risks, there, there are also experiences um, uh, f- uh, physical and, and physiological disillusion, which in the myths are usually either actual death or some kind of a symbolic death. So with Jesus, you know, it was death, the actual death and resurrection. With Buddha, it was um, reaching nirvana and coming back coming back to earth on purpose to help other people reach nirvana. So there's usually a, an actual or symbolic death involved. And then Jordan goes on to say, nonetheless, he, ta- again talking about the hero, overcomes the threat, is magically restored, frequently improved, and receives a great reward. He returns to his community with the reward and reestablishes social order. Okay, so... You know, what rewards those might be are going to vary depending on the myth. Maybe it's you kill the dragon, you get the treasure or the virgin. Um, You know, that's a common story, you know, with uh, Hercules. Maybe it's these apples of immortal life that you're getting. There's always a gift to be gained. And in real terms, maybe it's something like, you know, learning learning how to produce a certain crop or, you know, learning how to uh, defend your your city or yourself. You know, whatever the, the valuable thing might be that you've earned whether we're talking about the myth or like a, you know, down-to-earth example. Um, but what about, the, what about the greatest possible reward? So, so Jordan might call that the meta reward. So if you look at all the great things that the various heroes have brought uh, to bear from their heroic actions, the treasure and the virgins and all, the, all that, um, if we take all those rewards and we f- try to figure out what the pattern is there, what is, and we distill it down, what is the most powerful reward? What is the meta reward? It's the gift of immortality. Right? The best reward is to, is to conquer death because that's our greatest adversary, you know, as living things. So to possess and give the gift of, of immortality is the greatest conceivable gift. 
This isn't Jordan saying it. This is me. But interesting that in all myth, uh, mythic examples that I've referenced, Jesus, Buddha, the apples of Hesperides, all of them are symbols of just exactly that, victory over death. And again, because that is, is one of the most powerful parts of the mystic experience, this, this um, sort of diminishing of fear of dying. Or, or changing the way you think about dying in some really powerful way, that, that, that's tied very, very closely to the mystic experience, this, this meta reward. And maybe that's achievable in the mystic experience. All right, so Jordan goes on, he says, incorporation of this freed promise, that's the great reward that's been harvested from the unknown, um, that this is redemptive information and it transforms the hero. His transformed behavior then serves his community as model. Okay, so, so he becomes the latest embodiment of the way, the way of the hero, the pattern that makes you a hero. But he's improved the way by whatever new information this latest version of the hero has brought. And it's harvested from, from the unknown. And it revises the model. So now you've got an even better hero model. Every time it happens, every time you have a hero, you're, you're, you're improving the model of what it is to be a hero. And that's what's being emulated uh, by, by people going forward, the, the, the people who will become the next heroes. Amazing. So Jordan says, uh, the group is therefore transformed and restabilized in turn. He says the ultimate or archetypal representation of the original threatened state uh, is the is the unselfconscious but incomplete paradise that existed prior to the fall of humanity. Okay, so let's stop for a second. The ultimate or archetypal representation of the original threatened state. So what he's saying here is that new information is going to threaten the established order because the established order doesn't have room for this new information. I'm bringing something anomalous. I'm bringing something new and have to make it fit uh, into the story. So that's what threatens the state. The, the state is stable, but it's threatened by this new information because it has to change. That's what Jordan referred to as it being revolutionary earlier. And when he says that that state is symbolically this unconscious paradise, well, that is what we see in the Bible as, as the Garden of Eden. And he said it exists prior to the fall of humanity, which we know what that means in the Bible because, you know, uh, Eve eats the, uh, eats the apple. She disobeys God's commands. They, they lose paradise. They have to go out and, and, and live in the world and have hardship and pain and all that. So that makes sense in the context of the biblical story. But what is the fall of humanity when we're not talking about the biblical story here? Now, perhaps the rise of individual self-consciousness, you know, maybe that is what the fall of humanity is. And you kind of see that in the, in the biblical story too, with Adam and Eve recognizing that they're naked. So, right, they, they didn't know, they had no idea uh, of even a concept of shame or, or nakedness. But once they eat the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, then they recognize they're naked and they tell God, like, hey, I didn't know I was naked, that's why I'm hiding. And so what does that mean, to recognize that you're naked? Well, to me, I think that that's pretty clear. That's self-consciousness. And I think that's what Jordan means when he says that the original state was unconscious. And you can imagine Adam and Eve are in the garden. Um, they're more like animals. They're not, they're not self-conscious exactly. They're just sort of instinctual creatures, you know, living right along with God and nature. And then at some point they realize that they're naked. 
So that that is recognizing something in themselves that they were oblivious to before. That's self-consciousness, baby. All right, so Jordan says, the most primordial threat is the sudden reappearance or discovery of one of the manifestations of the terrible mother, a flood, an earthquake, a war, a monster, a fish, a whale, anything unpredictable or unexpected that destroys, devours, traps, engulfs, weakens, mystifies, or poisons. So these are all different ways where you might see the great mother appearing in a story or a myth or in your life, let's say. Um, what was the appearance of the unknown in the garden? It was the snake. It was the snake guarding the tree, like the, like the dragon guards the cave with the treasure in it, <laughs> right? Unbelievable. Anybody who thinks that the biblical stories aren't profound, read, that, read what I just fucking said. The idea that the, that the hero story, the, the potential, the greatest potential of your life personally... That story has already been written and contained in the book of Genesis. Unbelievable. And if you read it that way, you can understand. And if you, and if you read it the way that, you know, the materialist, scient- objective scientists do today, that it's all nonsense and mumbo-jumbo, if you read it that way, well, then that's what it is. And if you read it this way, then it's tremendously powerful. All right, so Jordan continues. The hero, product of divine parentage and miraculous birth, survivor of a dangerous childhood, faces the terrible mother in single combat and is devoured. He is swallowed by a great fish. You might remember the story of Jonah from the Bible, gets swallowed by a whale, uh, or a snake, or a whale, and spends time underground in the dark, in the winter, in the kingdom of the dead, or in hell. Faces a dragon, a gorgon, a witch, or a temptress. He defeats the monster, freeing those who had been previously defeated and gains or regains a lost or previously undiscovered object of value, a virgin, a woman, or treasure. Much older, much wiser, he returns home, transformed in character, bearing what he has gained, and reunites himself triumphantly with his community, which is much enriched. All right, so there's all sorts of interesting things here. This is obviously just a summary. It's just like a scaffolding of what that hero story looks like, bare bones. But you can see how all of the individual heroes that you may know of, how they map right onto it. So product of divine parentage. Okay, so like Hercules was, you know, uh, his father was Zeus, right? Um, Jesus, his father was, you know, Yahweh, (laughs) right? Um, so you can see that the, the divine parentage is part of the story. And that's interesting, too, because to me, I don't know what's significant about that, apart from recognizing that you are the son of God. And I, I say that in kind of the, the way, the, the way that the, the biblical text says that, that, that everything that's been created and human beings most particularly are children of God. We were created by God, direct, whether you believe that was direct or indirect or something, whatever. That, that that's, that's saying that the hero is born of divine parents is basically saying that the hero is divine. And that I, I, can, that I can go with because that is, um, that, that's part of the mystic intuition, absolutely, that we're one with God. So to consider God to be, you know, to, to meet me or, or any conscious creature to be the offspring of God or to have divine parents, to me that, that makes sense. But it also does something strange in the story is when you read a hero story, and you, and you hear that, you know, Hercules' Hercules's dad was Zeus, well, it kind of makes you feel like, you know, my dad, my dad built transmissions, right? So Hercules can do great things because his dad was Zeus, but, but my dad built transmissions, 
So I'm not a hero, right? I'm, I'm, I'm the son of a, I'm the son of a transmission mechanic. Um, you know, Jesus himself, the son of a carpenter. You know what I mean? How can I be the hero? I'm not, I'm not the son of, a div- of divine parents. But again, I think that what the story is telling you is not supposed to be a discouragement to say that, that the hero is, is special and somehow different from you. It's that the hero is special and so are you in exactly the same way. <sighs> Something like that. All right, survivor of a dangerous childhood. Um, you know, you can you can see that in the story of Hercules as well. You can see that in the Bible, but but only in not 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 in the actual Bible in the um, apocryphal books of the Bible, where uh, like for instance Jesus' story of Jesus, where he um, uh, you know like many kids um, got angry and acted emotionally and killed one of his friends. There's a story about about that in a, a non a non accepted uh, uh, gospel from from antiquity, where Jesus actually killed one of his friends, and when when he was confronted by the mother, he just brings the kid back to life because because he's Jesus, you know, he just brings him back to life. Um, so anyway, dangerous childhood, that, that might be something that you see. And then uh, faces the terrible mother in single combat. That's voluntarily facing the unknown. You know, for Jesus, that, that was death. For Buddha, it was all of the gods and, and uh, de- demons and devas from the Hindu religion that, that were attacking him when he was tr- trying to uh, reach nirvana in, in meditation. So you see those stories all over the place. Then it says he's swallowed by a great fish or a snake or spends time in the underworld or, or underwater or in the kingdom of the dead or something like that. And you can see, obviously, uh, in the story of Jesus, he died. He spent three days in hell before he was resurrected, or, or that's the way that the Catholics tell the story. Um, uh, we already talked about you know, Marduk and, uh, and, and Horus going into the underworld to resurrect their father. Um, you know, these are all, again, common parts of the hero story. And then the treasure that they gain from that, whatever that might be. So it just gives you some idea of how that general story maps onto some of the myths that you may, maybe you're familiar with. So another common and broadly distributed example like this is the stories that get told of the sun gods. So they're called solar myths. And these are things like, like Ra, uh, Amun-Ra from ancient Egypt, or Aten from ancient Egypt, um, Sol in the Roman religion, or even Apollo in the Greek religion. You guys are, may remember Apollo, he carries the sun in his chariot. He carries it across the sky in his chariot. So even, even Apollo is, is related to the, to the sun. So these are the types of myths that we're talking about. And then Jordan says, Solar myths portray the hero, excuse me, the journey of the hero in the typical solar myth. The hero is identified with the sun, bearer of the light of consciousness, who is devoured nightly by the water serpent of the West. All right, so there's already some stuff to talk about, but the idea here is, is pretty clear that the sun has always been a symbol of consciousness. Uh, and the reason is that consciousness is sort of very heavily connected to our senses and in particular to our sight and we can't see without light and there's no light without the sun okay so and there's other other reasons for that but that's one of the main reasons that the sun and light are connected to consciousness and he says the sun is devoured every night by the water serpent of the west so we know that the sun rises in the east it sets in the west if you're looking at the uh the sun setting into the ocean it looks like the water is just swallowing the sun maybe you guys have been lucky enough to see that on the beach or something um and that was seen as as the hero the 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 sun god the hero uh, of the culture 
um, going into the underworld, going down into the water. It's also important that the that the uh, water is called the serpent, right? So again, the serpent is a connection to the dragon. The water, if you guys remember, we talked about many times being a very common symbol for the unconscious, especially in dreams. So you've got the sun getting swallowed up by the unconscious, going, you know, going from the conscious to the unconscious, going from the realm of the living into the realm of the dead. So Jordan continues, in the night he battles terribly with this monster and emerges victorious in the morning rising renewed in the east so you can imagine that while you're sleeping soundly in your bed the hero of your of you, the the leader the king of the gods the hero the sun god is down in the underworld doing battle with the forces of darkness and and every day rises victorious and brings consciousness in the sun back to us and this is the this is the, the typical solar myth that you'll see in different cultures in different ways so in this way the rising of the sun each day is seen as a symbol of reflection of the hero's journey. So I wake up, I see the sun rise, I see the sun set and rise again. So every, everyone every day is confronted by the greatest example of what they can become or accomplish themselves. So as the sun god, as consciousness, defeats its great enemy, the darkness, we too can and should follow this example the example of the culture hero of the great sun god. It's about to get good here, you guys. So, um, so Jordan quotes um, Carl Jung's student a bunch, a guy named Eric Neumann, and this is a, a Neumann quote. He says, The hero is always a light bringer, an emissary of the light. Okay, so I want to stop there for a second. The hero is always, in these myths, a light bringer. And there's a couple reasons why this is important. The first one comes to mind is that there is, um, in Greek mythology, there's an important character called Prometheus. You guys maybe know him. He's the guy that brought fire to mankind and therefore civilization to mankind, and he got punished for it. He got, he got uh, chained to the top of a mountain where a vulture or eagle comes every day and eats his liver out of his body while he's alive. And because he's a god, it just grows back, and every day the, the vulture comes back and he suffers and suffers and suffers eternally for giving us f the gift of fire. But the reason I bring that up is because Prometheus is a culture hero. He brought culture to human beings, according to the Greek, Greek myth. And Prometheus brought fire. Um, and Neumann called these heroes bringers of light. So what is Prometheus if not a bringer of light? Right? He's a bringer of fire. Here's where it gets interesting. Prometheus is called uh, forethought. And so in Greek, his name means forethought. I'm not sure why that's important, but the reason I contrast it is because he's also called something else. In the Latin, I don't know the Greek here, but in the Latin, it's called Lucis Fair. So Prometheus is called the bringer of light. Lucis in, in Latin, light, fair, like the word bear in English, to bring. The, the light bringer, Lucis Fair. Now, how many times do I have to say Lucis Fair before you guys understand I'm saying Lucifer? Lucifer. That's interesting. Um, while we're talking about the hero, it's particularly interesting because just like the great mother and the great father that we talked about already, they're bivalent, as Jordan always says. There's a good version and a bad version, and the hero is no different. So the idea that Jesus or God and Lucifer or the devil are two sides of that coin, 
um, Jesus and, and, and Lucifer, let's say, are the two sides of the hero coin from the Christian perspective. And so the bringer of light is the hero. Lucifer is the hero in a manner of speaking. Um, but I'm not sure you knew that about, about Prometheus in the connection to, uh, in the connection to Lucifer. I, I, I was not aware of it. And when I found that out, I thought it was f- amazing. So I'm sharing that with you guys. All right, so uh, I'll just start again. He says, The hero is always a light bringer, an emissary of the light. At the nethermost point of the night sea journey, when the sun, the sun hero journeys through the underworld and must survive the fight with the dragon, at this lowest point of the year, Christ is born as the shining redeemer, as the light of the world. Okay, so you guys know Jesus was born, um, well, we don't exactly know when, maybe around the August time frame historically, but we, we celebrate that when? December 25th. Why? because it's just a couple days after the winter solstice, the 21st, the shortest day of the year, the day of the year when the night rains and the sun is at its weakest, the lowest point of the year. That's when the story goes, the myth goes, that Christ was born, the sun god, the hero. Um, And again, Christ is called the light of the world in the Bible. Again, we're talking here about Christ as like the perfect man, the way the Bible would describe him. I'm not talking necessarily about Jesus of Nazareth, the human being, but, but the symbol, um, the symbol that, that we're referring to when we say Christ, the perfect man, um, that object of admiration, the hero that we aspire to be. Interesting. So, so, what, so what is this idea of the light of the world, do you think? You know, if light equals consciousness, which, which I believe, again, the myth is, is, is consistent with the, with the myth, as the sun dispels the dark and lets consciousness see, then Christ as the light of the world is really something like the symbol for consciousness, which manifests itself within all living beings. So the light of the world is the thing by which we are made to see. Consciousness. This is, this is the literal sun in the sky and all the many forms of consciousness that see by that light. Unbelievable. All right. All right, so Jordan picks it up here. He says, he says that the Mesopotamian emperors and the pharaohs of Egypt, they were considered solar gods. They were considered representatives of the incarnated sun deity, eternal victor of the unending battle between order and chaos, light and darkness. This idea was developed further by the Greeks, who attributed to each male Greek a soul, and taken to its logical conclusion by the Jews and Christians, who granted every person absolute individual worth before God or potential, potential identity with God. And what, what Jordan is talking about here is um, that democratization of deity thing that we talked about where, um, where the, only the rulers historically were considered to be gods, literally gods. And then the Greek idea introduced the, uh, the idea of a soul, an, an idea of a sort of a, a sort of a, the God part of you, you know, like at that point, at that point in like the Hellenistic world, we were, we were seen, human beings were seen as sort of part, part God and part man, part heaven, part earth, uh, that were different from all the other things here that are like us, that are material. So there's something special about us. And the Greeks said that was the soul. So they, we now have this idea 
and that the Jews and Christians took that Greek idea um, and, uh, and, and equated it with God, so that, that part of you that we, we would call the soul, that that's somehow identical with God, which again, very mystical thing to say. And then uh, Jordan goes on, he says, the hero is a pattern of action designed to make sense of the unknown. Adherence to this central pattern ensures that the process of exploration always remains subordinate to all other considerations, including that of the maintenance of stable belief. This is why Christ, the defining hero of the Western ethical tradition, is able to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's John 14, 6. And then he says, why adherence to the, to the Eastern way, or the Tao, extant on the border between chaos, yin, and order, yang, ensures that the cosmos will continue and endure. Wow. So this is what the hero's journey ensures, the continued existence of the cosmos. Wow. That seems pretty important. Um, and this is, this is an interesting idea. Um, when, when Jordan says that the image of the hero, that that instinct is, is at the top of the hierarchy, it's the instinct to go out and explore and to create known from the unknown, that that is the top dog in the hierarchy. Um, and that that is what, and that explains what Jesus says in the Bible when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man, man cometh unto the Father but by me. And what he means by that is, but by the image of the hero. And that is the way just like the, the, the uh, Asian uh, cultures, would, we use that word Tao to mean the way, the way to be. So he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by I, he means the hero. Amazing. I think that's, I think that's missing on Christians, mostly. The idea, that, the idea that Jesus is saying, I'm providing you the example to follow and that you can be as I am. And, you know, the, and that's just, I mean, the modern Christian church is bereft of that. I never, I never saw any of that growing up in church. All right. So Jordan says the optimal desired state, you know, the state towards which we're aiming, the desired future, he says, is not a state, however, but a process, the process of mediating between order and chaos, the process of the incarnation of logos, the word, which is the world creating principle. So you remember, again, biblically, the, the word logos, we're, we're talking again about John and some other parts of the Bible um, that, that talk about the logos. And Jordan believes that that is a, that that is a, um, uh, a word that, that's used to, to talk about consciousness. Um, you know, it comes from the Greek, obviously, but it's a word that comes from consciousness. Um, and this is, this is interesting. So he's saying here that, um, that the that the hero, so that the desired state that we're aiming towards, that it is not a static thing, but it's a process. It's something that's changing. And we kind of talked about that already, where we talked about each person who's, who's following the heroic pattern is actually refining it a little bit and bringing a new heroic pattern to the next generation to follow. So you can definitely see that it's changing. Um, and again, that's the world-creating principle that he talked about. But the idea, the idea that where he says the process of the incarnation of Logos, to me, is the important bit. Because Logos is consciousness, and the incarnation is, is to be made flesh. It's, 
it's being, material reality, right? So, so the idea that um, you see in the Bible, like uh, that, that the human body is created and then God breathes life into it, something like that, that this is the idea that God becomes incarnated, that he becomes material when he wasn't material before. And what's being embodied in the incarnation is consciousness. Amazing. Amazing. Because that's how, that's how we find ourselves. Consciousness trapped inside this fleshy form. Something like that. All right, so he goes on to say, identification with this process, rather than with any of its determinate outcomes, ensures that emotion will stay optimally regulated and action remain possible no matter how the environment shifts. It is declarative representation of the pattern of behavior characteristic of the hero that eventually comes to approximate the story of the savior. Behind every particular adventurer, explorer, creator, revolutionary, or peacemaker lurks the image of the Son of God who sets his impeccable character against tyranny and the unknown. Man, I can't add anything to that. It's beautiful. All right, he says, the archetypic example of the Savior is the world redeemer, the Messiah, world-creating and redeeming hero. It is the sum total of the activity of the Messiah accumulated over the course of time that constitutes culture, the great father, order itself. However, the father is subordinate to the son. All fixed values necessarily remain subject to the pattern of being represented by the hero. All right, so you know that, um, you, so you know that the order, you know, that, that, that the great father is, is order. It's, it's static. And the great mother is change. So when you put those, those two things together, um, you're basically having the change continually dismantling the order all the time. And the hero, consciousness, you and me, we're the thing that goes in and reestablishes that order and keeps everything going. That's what we do. And he said that that pattern of reestablishing order, that is the pattern that's represented by the hero. All right, so um, dominion, the dominion of consciousness over, uh, over all, all of the other instincts and, and psychological forces. Um, Jordan shows this being described in the book of Daniel. And so I'll read this quote to you from the book of Daniel and try to think about it in that context, like consciousness at the top of the hierarchy. And uh, Daniel reads like this, One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And it shall not pass away. So, you know, again... From the mystic perspective, all things are consciousness. So even if the, this world should come and go, um, there's always the presumption that the potential for, for life and being exists there, even in the nothingness, even in the energy and, and, and outer space, the, the vacuum energy that they can't explain. It just exists where, where there's nothing. Um, that, that that is the thing that will always um, bring rise or give birth to new order. So it is, again, consciousness that's doing that, and its domain shall not pass away. That's interesting. That's interesting. All right. 
This next section we're going to call the Hostile Brothers. Um, even the hero has two sides. So we talked about that a little bit, but we're going to get into that here now. We talked about the great mother and father being bivalent and being understood in a good and a bad way, and that being some sort of some sort of representation of the original splitting or separation um, of the Ouroboros. And so when the Ouroboros got separated into chaos and order, all things got separated into chaos and order, including this idea of, of the hero. All right, so let's start this way. Jordan says, the mythic hostile brothers. Now, he gives examples here that I'll have to explain at least some of them. Um, Spinta Manu and Angra Manu. Um, those are the Zoroastrian deities. We talked about Zoroastrianism a lot uh, in the podcast already, but um, there are other names that are used. Um, Ariman instead of Angra Manu and um, uh, Hora Mazda instead of Spinta Manu. But these are the um, basically the god of good and the god of evil. You can think about that like the way we think of God and the devil. So those are the hostile brothers from the Zoroastrian religion. Then he also gives other examples. Osiris and Seth, obviously Egypt. Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Uh, Cain and Abel. Christ and Satan. He says, our representative of two eternal individual tendencies, twin sons of God, heroic and adversarial. The former tendency, the archetypal savior, is the everlasting spirit of creation and transformation, characterized eternally by the capacity to admit to the unknown and therefore to progress towards the kingdom of heaven. The eternal adversary, by contrast, is incarnation of the spirit of denial, eternal rejection of the redeeming unknown, and the adoption of rigid self-identification. So that's the, again, the adversary. That's literally what the word Satan means. So you can have an idea. But that's also the force in yourself and in your community that's holding you back from following your interests, from going into the unknown. All of the, all of the order and the structures that are holding you back. And Jordan continues, Myths of the hostile brothers, like those of the Zoroastrians, tend to emphasize the role of free choice in determining uh, of a central mode of being. Christ, for example and Gautama Buddha are tempted constantly and potently towards evil, but choose to reject it. Angramanyu and Satan accept evil by contrast and revel in it, despite evidence that it produces their own suffering. So I like to think of the emperor from Star Wars here, deformed and possessed by the power of the dark side of the force. And, he, and Jordan says, it is, it is voluntary willingness to do what is known to be wrong despite the capacity to understand and avoid such action, that most particularly characterizes evil. So it's, he's emphasizing here that it's a force, but it's also a choice. So just like the, becoming a hero is a choice, becoming the anti-hero is a choice. Um, and that people who, people who get caught up in it, even when it's not doing them any good, somehow they, somehow they take solace in it, somehow they take joy in it. I mean, you can, you can, you know what I mean. If you, if, if you've ever met like a compulsive liar who lies, even when they don't have to lie, or, um, you know, or like, or a drug addict or something that pretends there's no problem, uh, that kind of thing. Jordan says spiritual reality plays itself out endlessly in profane reality, as as man remains eternally subject to the dictates of the gods. Individual persons therefore unconsciously embody mythological themes. Individual persons embody mythological themes. So you can just become uh, like 
characters and myths and stories. You can become like them, and for the same reasons. And the fact that he says that spiritual reality, what he means here is psychic reality, like the development of your self and your subjective world, that that plays out in the real world. Just like Kyle and I were talking about this war of ideas that that's happened, you know, for as long as we can remember, that plays out in actual war. And we go to war like we did in the Civil War to determine whether slavery is wrong. It's like we have to actually go out and kill each other to determine what we already know that one idea is better than the other. It's unbelievable. All right, so Jordan says, individual existence means limited existence, limited in space and time. The existence of the limits makes experience possible. Okay, I'm gonna stop there for a second because that's such an important point that people don't realize, that if there were not limits, that experience, that being, that reality would not be possible. and. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I don't want to, you know, if Jordan's going to um, describe this here uh, further, I can't remember. I don't want to steal too much of his thunder here. But but the idea that um, we can talk about the way we talked about the Ouroboros, where if the Ouroboros is supposed to be the thing that, that gave birth to the cosmos, the thing that is subject and object together, that's being and non-being together, um, that that thing is... It's not limited. It's limitless. It has, it has, you know, it has no beginning and end. It has no, it, you know, it's it's unlimited, and so it's it's not really knowable. But when, but when the hero Marduk, when he separates order from chaos, when he opens up the Ouroboros and separates the two opposing pieces of it, um, that actually does limit somehow at least something something that allows for being, that allows for reality to emerge. And so there's this idea of, of limits being required for existence, for experience of anything. And again, an easier example to understand is an example that uh, Jordan brought up about trying to, um, trying to understand a table. He's like, a table, a table is infinitely complex, and it means an infinite number of things. Um, but it's your consciousness that limits it to something specific something that you call a table. And if you guys, I don't have to rehash this, but you, you remember, he said, like, look, a table is what? Um, you, it, you know, it's something now at, at the level of reality that I'm observing it, but if I was looking at it from the level of the cosmos, I can't even see the table. It's just part of the earth. And if I don't look at it from, like, this moment in time, if I rewind the clock, the table is a tree. It's not even a table. So that there's, you know, there's so much more in a thing that, that if you didn't have limits like space and time or in consciousness, if you didn't have limits like that, that everything kind of is everything. It has no limits. And if it's everything, it's kind of nothing. Um, so limits are very, very important. And he says, the existence of the limits makes experience possible. The fact of them makes experience unbearable. And so you can imagine that, like, like life is limited, right? It doesn't go on forever. And that's part of what makes life unbearable, knowing that we're going to die. You know, if I put a bunch of time into, um, you know, drawing a picture, let's say, on a piece of paper, uh, it's only limited by, you know, and how long it will last by the, the nature of the paper and the pencil. And so anyway, um, even that is unbearable. Like the, the idea that my creative productions are going to, are going to, degrade and disappear, that they're not permanent, they're going away. It's part of what makes life unbearable. So he goes on, he says, we have been granted the capacity for constant transcendence, 
as an antidote, but frequently reject that capacity because using it means voluntarily exposing ourselves to the unknown. We run away because we are afraid of the unknown at bottom. Such fear also makes us cling to our protective social identities, which shields us from what we do not understand. So while running away, we necessarily become slave to convention and habit and deny the troublesome best within ourselves. Why run away? Is it fear? Fear of the unknown and its twin? Fear of rejection by the protective social world? which leads to pathological subjugation of unique individual personality, to rejection of the totality of personal being, which when manifested has truly redemptive capability? The Great Father hates innovation and will kill to prevent it. The Great Mother, source of all new knowledge, has a face that paralyzes when encountered. How can we not run away when confronted by such powers? But running away means that everything worthwhile ages then dies. Whew. So I had to read that whole thing in it in, in, once because there's just too much going on there, but it's really interesting. Um, so we're talking about existence being limited and that makes experience possible. And that, and that because it's limited, that experience is also kind of unbearable in some ways. And that we've been granted the capacity for constant transcendence as an antidote to that. So the idea is as the world changes... Um, and we, you know, resist or are unhappy with that, that we also have the ability to change ourselves. We can also transform. And if we allow ourselves to transform, like the world is transforming, that that will be, uh, that will be a boon, that, that, that will be the hero's journey for us. That will be something that, that creates something more out of us and out of the world, something like that. Um, and then he also says that it's, it's the voluntary exposure. So again, we're, that word voluntary comes up, that we have to do that ourselves. It has to be our choice. And that many people don't make that choice. Many people run away from that because changing is hard. And because facing something hard is, is, is fearful. It causes negative emotion, and we don't like that. We run from that. We run from the thing, the the very thing that makes us as formidable as the world. <laughs> I mean, that paradoxical thing. Unbelievable. All right, so he goes on to say, the unknown has to be mined for precise significance before it can be said to have been experienced. And this is just the idea of going out into the unknown and having an experience. We have to have the experience to get the new information from it. And he uses the word mined. I like to use the word harvested, but, I, you know, you get the idea. He says, uh, has to be transformed laboriously from pure affect, meaning emotion, into revision of presumption and action. What he's saying here is that you go into the unknown, you encounter something which in the beginning is just emotion, fear and curiosity, like we talked about, when you, when you encounter something new. And you take that fear and curiosity, through your experience, you transform it into psyche or, or personality. You turn, you, 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 um, integrate that into your personality and that's something that doesn't get enough uh, people don't talk about it enough it's something that Carl Jung talked about a lot with the, the shadow and we've mentioned this before but it's like hey we're all capable of terrible things if you don't believe me look at what Hitler did look at what Mao did look at what Jeffrey Dahmer did look at what you know the Atlanta murderers did you know child murderer did look at all the terrible things people do and you're one of them and you're just as capable of doing that and until you realize that you are capable of it, 
there's this unconscious part of you called the shadow that will that will it will creep out in ways that you don't expect and and can't control like when you get super angry for no reason and you lash out physically and you're not even a violent person but you just found yourself punching a stranger I, you know silly example but you know what i mean that that you have to integrate the shadow you have to know hey that is part of me i i know that when you integrate that into into yourself you take the reins consciousness now becomes the the again top of the hierarchy the ruler of one of these other instincts in this case the shadow and that part of you that's capable of doing terrible things can now be harnessed to do whatever you want good things but whatever you want so it becomes a part of your personality and it makes you greater uh, Jordan says rejection of the process of creative explore, exploration means adaption to the present as if it were the past refusal to think the rectification of error is, after all, not inevitable. It is neither effortless nor automatic. Mediation of order and chaos requires courage and work. So this is, this is great. It reminds me of the passage I've quoted from the Bible that says, uh, knock and it shall be opened, ask and it shall be given, that you actually have to do something to get, to get something out of, out of uh, you know, your efforts, out of the world. You're going to choose what unknown you want to encounter. And what you get out of that requires courage because you have to do it voluntarily. And it requires work because you have to do something. You have to go and have the experience. And people who reject that, people who won't have those experiences, who don't explore the unknown, who try to stay static and happy and stable just like they are now, they're not taking into consideration that the world is changing all around them. They're treating the present as if it were the past. That's what Jordan said. And that's going, to, that's going to become a problem because when the, when the present is sufficiently different from the past, you are fucked. So the hero's journey is necessary to prevent that. Um, Jordan says, avoidance means that anomalous experience is kept unconscious, so to speak, which means completely unrealized. Now, people like Freud and Jung will, will say that when you have those sorts of things that you repress, that's another psychological word, but that you repress, that those things remain unconscious, that they don't get integrated into your personality, and it causes mental illness. It causes what's, what he calls neuroses. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to become schizophrenic or something if you don't do that, but what I'm saying is that you will find um, all sorts of unexplained um, hardships and obstacles in your life that you can't understand and you can't get over because you refuse to, to change sufficiently so you can see the problem. You're just pretending like it doesn't exist. And those are those neuroses that you see. Jordan says, The implication of the dangerous thought remain unconsidered. The presence of the threatening fantasy remains unadmitted. The existence of the unacceptable personal action remains unrecognized. The lie is easy and rewarding, as it allows for the avoidance of anxiety, at least in the short term. So in the short term, again, there's a strategy that will help, help release, re relieve some of the bad feelings, some of the anxiety, like, it, like, like the, the power that keeps people procrastinating when you know you got to do the thing and you just keep trying to find everything, everything to do apart from the thing you know you have to do. Avoiding that creates, uh, you know, it, it temporarily relieves the anxiety of that work, but it never permanently gets rid of it. It just kicks the can down the road. And Jordan says, every attempt to wish any aspect of experience out of existence transforms it into an enemy. 
So another way of saying that is avoidance gives birth to dragons, right? So you, you avoid something, you pretend it doesn't exist. If that thing is real, um, that's going to become something you're blind to, an obstacle that you keep running into. It's going to be something that continues to, to interfere with you until you recognize it. That's kind of what repression means from a psychological perspective. And uh, Jordan says, every facet of being hidden from the light leads a corrupt and sun-starved existence underground. So he's talking about the shadow, like, like I just said, that, that ex- ex- exists in you, but in your subconscious and creeps out in ways that you can't explain and can't control and are, and are you know, difficult for you. Um, that's that sun-starved existence that these, uh, you know, that these instincts living in your unconscious, uh, ex- you know, that, that's the experience that, that, that they're still there, alive and good, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they're doing it in a way that's invisible to you and that you aren't controlling. You know, why would you, why would you want that? You want to put that, you want to put that thing underneath the hierarchy of, 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 with consciousness on top in control of it, like a, like a weapon or a tool, not like a, you know, not like a, um, unpredictable, you know, uh, trickster or troublemaker. And then Jordan says experience, absolute reality itself is in the final analysis, or excuse me, in the final analysis, cannot be denied without consequences. And here he's saying absolute reality itself. He's equating that with experience, which is really interesting. But he, but he, you know, it's kind of a caution there maybe to some of these scientific atheist types that to deny absolute reality, to deny that Terminator 2 substance, that infinite potentiality, to deny consciousness, which they do all of the above, to deny that cannot be done without consequences. What those consequences are, I don't know. But... You know, maybe that's holding holding back science. Maybe that's holding back progress because we're we're unwilling to take those things into account. I don't know. All right, Jordan says the act of turning away from something uh, anomalous is the process of labeling that anomalous thing as too terrifying to be encountered in its most fundamental form. To avoid something is also to define it, and in more in a more general sense, to define oneself. You see, to avoid is to say that it's too terrible. And that means too terrible for me. The act of turning away, therefore, means willful opposition to the process of adaptation, since nothing new can happen when everything new is avoided or suppressed. The act of facing an anomaly, by contrast, is the process of labeling that event as tolerable and simultaneously the definition of oneself as the agent able to so tolerate. If the nature of the goal is shifted from desire for predictability to development of personality capable of facing chaos voluntarily, then the unknown which can never be permanently banished will no longer be associated with fear and safety, paradoxically, will be permanently established. Okay, this is super interesting. So the idea that I'm not going to go encounter something unknown because I'm afraid. That making that declaration, that saying that, admitting that, is to diminish yourself. Because what you're saying is, I'm not strong enough to face the unknown. And what that does is it makes you weak in a literal way. Like according to your subjective world, you just made yourself a smaller role, a bit part, right? You've done that to yourself by saying that you're not capable of facing the unknown. Um, And that he said that is avoidance. That is active suppressing of the heroic instinct. That's that's the devil on your one shoulder 
fighting with the angel on your other, literally. And he said, he said the goal should not should not be about avoiding, um, you know, the fear that 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 encountering with the unknown is is almost certainly going to bring. It's not about that. It's about facing that fear voluntarily because you know by doing that you're going to make yourself and the world greater. You're going to you're going to have some new part of yourself, some new part of your arsenal that will make you stronger and greater. And if you don't think that's a possibility, just remember when you grew up. Remember how that was when you grew up. When you were a kid, when you became when you uh, you know, reached each new phase of your life when you went into the working world and you figured out how to, how to do that too. Every time you, do, you did that, you brought forth some new part of yourself that you didn't even know about, the part that could be responsible, the part that could, that could you know, do work and, and deal with hardship and, and, and you know, overcome all of that, that you had to kind of show yourself that was there within you by living your life. You know, same thing, same thing when you learn to ride a bike, you know? All right. Jordan says, sacrifice of the hero to the great and terrible father uh, means abandonment of identification with the process that makes cosmos out of chaos. Okay, so that's sacrificing the hero to the great father. That's saying that rather than going out and, and into the unknown and finding new places and getting, and getting new information, I'm just going to subordinate that heroic instinct to the, to the terrible father. I'm going to say, look, culture is going to do it. We've already, we've already solved all the problems. I'm just going to do what my dad did before me. I'm going to toe the line. Everything will work out just fine. What that reminds me of is Bilbo Baggins from, from the... Um, uh, the um, not, not the Lord of the Rings, but the Hobbit. Um, because, because if you remember, uh, you know, Bilbo was happy to live in the Shire and not have any hardships and live in this picturesque, beautiful place with no, with no predators among all of his harmless friends and family. Um, he was happy to do that. And in fact, so was uh, Frodo. Happy, happy to do that. They had to kind of be forced into adventure. But when they did, what happened to Bilbo? What happened to Frodo? They became heroes. They became not just heroes in the sense in the sense that they saved the world, heroes in the sense that they became formidable he- uh, people. You know, they're not they're not afraid harmless hobbits anymore. You know, they're formidable people that have slayed. You know, uh, uh, I can't remember what the what the uh, the villains are called in that, but the, they've slayed the orcs, right? They've slayed the orcs. They've they've um, you know they've they've faced the dragon. They've faced all these literal. Um, uh, monsters, right? And what and what happened to them? They're all the better for it. And when they when they came back to the Shire, the Shire was all the better for it. And, and Frodo follows Bilbo and Bilbo's lead and becomes the new hero and and uh, and modifies that pattern and becomes the new type of hero to be modeled. You know, this is what we're talking about here. Um. All right. So this is described in the Book of Matthew, and it goes like this. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And this is interesting. So what Jordan's doing is he's equating the Holy Ghost to the spirit or the instinct to explore the unknown. He's he's basically saying that part of the Trinity, when you look at this, that this this is the closest match. This is what it's saying. Um, that sin against the Holy Ghost is actually sin against that heroic instinct to go into the unknown. And that is why it can't be forgiven, because that's all that, all that consciousness is here to do. 
That's what you're supposed to be doing. If you sin against that, what are you here for? Interesting. Um, so this instinct, this heroic instinct to explore is also the instinct to follow your interests. And this is something that I skipped over in the, in the Maps of Meaning book just to save space here, but Jordan talks about the god uh, Mercury or Mercurius, which was the, the Latin version that was used among the alchemists. But Mercury, the Roman, the Roman god, uh, and he talks about this a lot because, you know, you know Mercury, the, the, the metal, this metallic liquid metal, it's this shiny, amazing looking thing. It doesn't look like anything else. And so the symbol is, it's something that, that draws your attention. It's shiny, it's glittery, it, 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 you can't help but look at it. it. It just captivates you. If you've seen Mercury, you know, move in a Petri dish or something, it's just unbelievable. Too bad it's toxic, and a, a lot of people used to play with it, you know, in the old days. You know, break open the thermometers and play with it. Um, but, but Jordan also talks about the, the golden snitch from Harry Potter being like that. It's the thing that glitters. It's the thing that draws your attention. It's this ethereal thing whether we're talking about the god Mercury, the messenger of the gods, or the hairy snitch, the, the, the hairy snitch, <laughs> the golden snitch, um, that all of these things are a symbol of the things that draw your attention, the things that draw your interest. And we ask that question many times on this podcast. What is it that, that, that does that? Because it's not under your control exactly. You don't get to control what you're interested in. Just try to become interested in something you don't care about. Just try good luck. So this, this um, instinct, this heroic instinct, he's saying that that is the same thing as whatever it is that, that makes you interested in things. And if you follow the interest, if you chase the golden snitch like they do in Harry Potter, if you follow your interest, it will bring you into the unknown where you're going to find that information that you most need, the information you need to build yourself and to build the world. Whew, buddy. All right, here we go. This next section here is called The Way, the Truth, and the Light. All right, Jordan says, that which has not yet been explored is not yet even real. Let me just stop there for a second. There's a way in which you can see that's true. Um, when you say, if you haven't explored something, it's not real to you, to you. Um, but what he's saying here is that something that's not been explored by anyone even though it, you know, you could say in some way it exists because you can encounter it. Um, in another way, it's, it's not real. In another way, it doesn't exist. It has to have been encountered and experienced or else it doesn't exist. Because how do things exist for you and me? In our experience, that's how they exist. That's where they exist. That's all they are in our experience. So he's saying that something that hasn't been experienced, and, and there's a way in which it's not real. And that's important. It's like it remains in the darkness. It remains in the unconscious. It remains in that potential that, that Jordan talks about, where he, where he says it's latent information, that kind of thing. So Jordan says, this means that every task left undone, every emergent territory left unexplored, compromises latent information from which competent personality could be extracted, from which you know, the rest of yourself, you might say, could be extracted. He says, the unknown is the raw material out of which the personality is manufactured in the course of exploratory activity. Unbelievable. So 
So it's going into the unknown, it's encountering things and using them to construct your, your personality in the same way that we talked in the last few episodes about using that information to construct your subjective world. You're building yourself and the world out of it. All right, he says, faith in God means faith in that which kindles one's interest. To deny those interests is to deny God, to fall from heaven and land squarely in hell where one's passions burn eternally in frustration. Okay. So you can you can you can imagine if there's especially if there's something that you're passionate about. Um, imagine putting yourself in a situation where you can never do that thing. You would be living in hell, in a manner of speaking, and that's what he's saying. He's saying that you must follow your interests, that your interests will bring you into the unknown, and that you are brave enough and courageous enough and formidable enough to deal with whatever that unknown is. And if you do that, that that's something that you will, will be able to, to integrate into your personality. And it reminds me of uh, being when I was a kid. I used to draw a lot. Uh, I used to draw a lot of anime and stuff like that. And I remember drawing a warrior, uh, like a medieval knight-type warrior with a sword and armor. And the helmet that I put on this on this drawing was the it was the skull of a dinosaur, like a T-Rex skull. And the way I did it was just, you know, whatever. Somehow it, he was using it as a helmet. So he's going into war, you know, with this T-Rex skull as a helmet. And I was a kid. I thought that was the, so badass. It was such a badass thing. And, uh, and in retrospect, what I realized is that, that, that putting the T-Rex skull on the warrior was like giving the warrior the, the power and fury of this monster, you know, it was like by wearing the helmet, it was embodying somehow um, the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, and that's how that's how I thought of it. That's why I thought it was cool. This is what he means, though, when he says you gain something from the unknown and you it, you become part of your personality. It's like putting the putting the dinosaur skull on your head. Like you you now have something that the dinosaur had that's at your disposal now. And it's not just randomly happening, but it's like in your hands. It's ready at hand for you to use. And that's why it's so important to do it voluntarily. Um, okay, he says, the, the ability of the unknown to attract provides impetus for its personification as spirit as that which motivates and directs. So in, in a way here, he's talking about the things that attract you, uh, that have that feeling, that, that phenomenon of being interested or attracted to something, that that's, a, that's part of the reason why um, this idea of spirit, uh, um, you know, came, came to exist at all. Because it's something that you can't see or feel exactly, but it, but you could, but it does affect you motivationally. Like, like there's some unseen force that's pulling me towards something that I'm interested in. So what is that? It must be something supernatural. So it's interesting. All right, now, Jordan says, heroic behavior compels imitation. And, I, I mean, I, I gave that example with Keith earlier, but you, I'm sure you have many examples you can think of of yourself. When you see somebody doing something selfless or something, you know, great, whether it's a you know, a feat of sports genius or whether it's a feat of, you know, like sacrifice or something. When you see things like that, that, that are, um, that are, uh, admirable 
that it does compel imitation. It's something that you, as soon as you recognize the value in it, you're like, man, you know, you want that for yourself. You want it for yourself. And you know it's possible because you've just seen it. And so Jordan says this, he says, the imitation of Christ or the central cultural hero of other religious systems tends to take the form of ritualistic worship. Voluntary participation in the heroic process, by contrast, makes worship a matter of true identity. This means the true believer rises above dogmatic adherence to, to realize the soul of the hero, to incarnate that soul in every aspect of day-to-day life. And so this is really, uh, uh, this is for the Western, you know, world, this is probably an easy conversation to have. So you know, you know, the, the symbol of Jesus, let's say on the cross or something at church all the time and you're meditating on it and praying to it and all that. And you understand that, that there's a way in which you come to recognize the value, the admirable qualities of somebody like, like Christ who would die for everyone else, including strangers, you know, for the greater good. And, uh, you know, all the different things that you might pull out of that, out of the, the story of Jesus that are admirable. And you can try to act that way for your, for yourself. But in, in religious ritual, um, we have this, we have this like way of, how do I put this? We have this way of pretending to do what Jesus did, right? Um, like that communion, um, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, according to, you know, according to the story. And to remember that, we eat a cracker and drink some juice. You see what I'm saying here, guys? What Jordan is saying is that religion makes it something that you're practicing in this way that you don't exactly understand. And sometimes that's helpful because it gets you to the point where you realize you can take action and do, the, and do this in your own life. But it's also kind of like a... Kind of like a kind of like a faint, you know, ghost version of the actual heroic act. He's saying that the true believer rises above the ritual. It doesn't need to go through the motions and do this thing it doesn't understand anymore. It recognizes that what it's doing is showing you a path of something you can do. So the hero goes and puts that to, to uh, puts that into action in their own life, who incarnates the spirit, who becomes the hero himself, who becomes Christ himself and then goes and acts like, like Christ-like in his day-to-day life. That's the goal. Not, not to pretend to do what Jesus did, but to do what Jesus did. Something like that. He says, The hero is an enemy of the historically determined structure of values and assumptions because he may have to reorder that structure and not merely add to it or maintain it to deal with what still remains unknown. Right, the hero brings new information in. It, it, that might mean changing things a little, it might mean changing things a lot. Um, so I have a note here. Uh, chasing your interests and building yourself up from those experiences forges you into a being who can reorder structure when it is needed, when our stable world falls apart, and to manifest new structure to build the future. All right, now Jordan says, the highest levels of myth provided man with the capacity to attribute meaning or to discover meaning within the tragedy of each individual human life. To live at this mythic level, rather than to hide, means the possibility of reaching and perhaps exceeding the highest stage of consciousness yet attained. This mythic life is uh, symbolically represented by the Savior. 
In the Western tradition, for better or worse, like it or not, that individual is Christ. So we can use this idea of Christ, and I will, because I'm the most familiar with it, um, but we could use any other culture hero as well, uh, religious cultural hero, to, to have the same conversation. And he's, he's saying, you know, uh, for, for basically the Western world, you know, whether you're one of those, whether you're one of those atheists and, and uh, you know, anti-mythological people or not, that Christ is still this cultural symbol. It's still affecting your your values and your life in ways that you that you that you don't obviously don't admit to. And what's also interesting about this about this quote here is he says that there might be a possibility of reaching. Uh, a higher stage of consciousness than anything that's yet been attained. And so the idea here is if, if I go out into the unknown and I create, um, I, and I, cre- I get information there that I can incorporate into myself and I can build my personality out of it, if I do that more than anyone who's ever lived or in different ways than anyone who has ever lived, that it might be possible for me to literally become something you know, the, the, the word Ubermensch comes to mind, but I, the implications are bad. Um, that you might become something that, that's potential within every human being. It just hasn't emerged yet. And what that next step is, that next stage of evolution or existence, I have no idea. But there might still be an infinite amount yet to be unlocked from this infinite potential that we call reality. Something like that. All right. Um, all right, he says... As the Word made flesh, John 1.14, there in the beginning, John 1.1, he represents the power that divides order from chaos. So here he's talking about um, the Logos again. He's talking about the Word made flesh, which is that the Logos that we talked about. That is consciousness incarnated. So the Word made flesh is consciousness incarnated. And he says it was there in the beginning, which means, again, Genesis 1, in the beginning, Right? That, that's God. Consciousness was there with God or synonymous with God. It's not clear. As he says, he represents the power that divides order from chaos. That's consciousness. That's you and me. And the Bible here is saying that that force was there in the beginning when the universe was created. In fact, it was the force that divided chaos from order, Tiamat from Apsu, that split the Ouroboros and created the cosmos. That thing, the word, that's you and me. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, we're getting close here, you guys. Uh, okay, so he goes on. He says, to love God means to listen to the voice of truth, to love thy neighbor as thyself. This means not merely to be pleasant, polite, and friendly, but to attribute to the other a value equivalent to the value of the self, which despite outward appearances is a representative of God and to act in consequence of this valuation. All right, so that's awesome. Um, it says straight to the point something that we believe even if we don't admit to it, which is something about our inalienable rights that we have in this country, that we our government is set up such that it recognizes the divinity of every individual, that the individual is important. And that comes from the idea that having inalienable rights comes from the idea that we're all made in the image of God. What Jordan says here is that we're representative of God, all of us. This is why we should love our neighbor as ourselves, because according to the mystic experience, your neighbor is yourself. Something like that. 
All right, so he says, the process of, of imitation and abstracted variants thereof, however, allow for the nature of this essence to be continually clarified until finally representation of specific heroic actions give way to representation of the process of heroism per se. At this point, it becomes possible for the creative individual to consciously incarnate the process of world redemption itself. So once you figure out what the pattern is, what the, what the pattern of the hero is in general, not the individual heroes, but the greater pattern, once you know that, what that is, you can embody that. You can incarnate that consciously, voluntarily, and become the world-redeeming re- force itself. So we can, we can reinvent the hero. We can make it ever more potent um, and ever more powerful symbol by choosing to become the hero and make it even more perfect, more compelling, more ripe for imitation. Jordan says, Christ presented the kingdom of heaven, the archetypal goal, as a spiritual kingdom, which is to say a psychological, then interpersonal state. So this is Jordan's way of saying that when we talk about spirit, we, what we really mean is psyche. Uh, we, what, we, what we really mean is subjective, something like that. And he said that, that Christ um, said that the goal is this kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. He says, this state differed from the hypothetical promised land described in the Old Testament. It was predicated upon reconceptualization of the nature of the goal of paradise itself. And so the idea of the kingdom of God versus the promised land that we see in the Old Testament is that the, the kingdom of God Jesus talks about, that's, that's focused on the here and now. The, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what the Bible says. And, uh, you know, the promised land is this, um, this land to come. Right, Jesus is saying no. The, the, the goal is not the, this perfect land to come. It's, it's it's not paradise. You know, later, it's here and now. All right, he says. Likewise, the purpose of human existence is not the establishment of some static, perfect manner of being. He says man would, would find such perfection intolerable. Rather, human purpose is generation of the ability to concentrate on the innately interesting and effectively significant events of the present with sufficient consciousness and clarity to render concern about the past and future unnecessary. Um, that sounds to me a little bit like, like that flow state that you hear creative people talk about, but it also sounds like enlightenment, you know, a state that renders the past and the future unnecessary. Well, even the mystic experience would be one of those. All right, Jordan says, pay attention, and when your behavior produces a consequence you find intolerable, modify it no matter what it takes. Allow consciousness of your present insufficiency to maintain a constant presence so that you do not commit the error of pride and become unbending, rigid, and dead in spirit. Live in full recognition of your capacity for error and your capacity to rectify such error. Do not shrink back, avoiding inevitable contact with a terrible unknown. So remember, avoidance makes the dragons grow, as we said earlier. But this is really interesting. Um, You know, he's saying that you have to conform with the way the world is. So when, when things don't go according to plan, you have to modify your behavior to find the match, to figure out what, what that missing information is that's making your actions inconsistent with the world. you got to figure that out. Uh, but he says you, you always have to remember, though, keep it in mind, that, that you have to continue to figure it out, 
that you're not, that you don't have perfect knowledge. That's that maniacal arrogance that Kyle and I talk about, that Rachel Maddow and everybody on NBC, it drives me absolutely nuts, can't, can't get this arrogant flavor out of their mouth because they're telling me things that are certain all the time when they don't have any idea the certainty of it. That's that unbridled uh, arrogance that I'm talking about that he's saying when people, when people come to a point where they feel like they have it all figured out and they don't need any more information, well, guess what? There's an infinite amount of information. You don't have enough. You think you have enough, but you don't have enough. So you become that Luciferian pride, that, that maniacal arrogance kicks in. You pretend to know something you, you, you don't. And so Jordan already said what, what, that, what happens as a course of that, that you're treating the present as if it were the past. You're cruising for a bruising, as my mom would say. All right. Uh, Jordan says, the incorporation of Christ's mystic body during the ritual of the Mass is dramatic representation of the idea that the hero must be incorporated into each individual, that everyone must partake of the essence of the Savior. Couldn't have said it better myself. So this, so this idea of communion, like taking, taking the, the culture hero, Christ, into yourself is, is a symbolic way of becoming Christ. So why would you become Christ if not to do what Christ did, to be the hero. All right, so here's an example um, of embodiment, of incorporating something into yourself from Jordan's letter to his dad that we talked about at the beginning from the 80s. So Jordan's letter, it goes like this. He says, you see, if what I think and am is a product of history, that means that history must take form inside of me, so to speak, and from inside of me to determine who I am. This is easier to understand if you consider that I carry around inside of me an image of you, composed of memories of how you act and what you expected and depictions of your behavior. This image has had profound impact on how I behave as a child when even in your absence, I was compelled to follow the rules which you followed and which I learned through imitation. <sighs> I love that. Such a, good way of, such a good way of wrapping up this section because I... I got, you know, I got goosebumps on my arms because I know exactly what he means. And when he says, when he says that history, that history, he, he's a product of history, that history created him in some way so that it must be working inside of him somehow to, de to determine who he is. And he's like, that's hard to understand, but not exactly because he's talking to his dad here. He says, look, I carry around an image of you. Not, not literally a picture. He's saying, somehow in, I've embodied this, somehow incorporated into my being is this image of you that, that reminds me of how you acted and how you behaved and what you expected of me and, and laid out how to, to live, a way of being. And that's a part of me. And I, I have the same feeling. Uh, my, my father is exactly that way, an image that lives inside of me. Just like my mother and, and many other people, um, but mother and father are very important uh, ideas. So imagine carrying around this idea of a hero inside of you the same way that you carry around the image of your father. Assuming you had a good relationship with your father. It doesn't really work otherwise. All right. This section, which I believe to be the last, is called Not What They Seem. Here we go. Jordan says, It is a fact that the phenomenon itself which is of infinite complexity, is always capable of transcending its representation. 
That means that means reverting from known back to the unknown. When it transcends its representation, it's it's become unknown, right? The representation is the box that I put it in so that I can understand what it is. When it becomes something that doesn't fit in that representation anymore, it's unknown again. He's saying that that ability is always there in every phenomenon, in every object, in every situation. He says, this capacity for transcendence is a property of the object, a property of experience, but can be exploited by the activity of man. And this makes me think of um, this makes me think of the story about uh, Michelangelo when he carved uh, the statue David. He he said that he's staring, you know, at the marble in the mountainside, and he can see Mike, he can see David in this uncarved block in the mountain. Um, and, and that's that's what I think Jordan is saying, where he says, look, this capacity to to, uh, to, to go from no, known to unknown, this transformational property that, that everything has, that's something that can be exploited by man. And it's like seeing the potential that's there in the object, the way that Michelangelo saw the potential of David in that, in that, in that block. Um, the same way that we saw the potential for the atomic bomb in the, in the, in the hydrogen atom. You know what I mean? Um, it's not at all obvious, but there it is. All right, so Jordan says, The capacity of human beings to apprehend variable spatial temporal spans turns the object into something more complex than its mere present appearance. This increase in complexity is compounded by the extended activity, uh, or excuse me, extended active capacity for exploration, also typical of our species. So what is he saying here? He's saying that human beings can look at objects from different, um, he says he says spatial temporal spans, but he, another word he uses and that I like better is levels of analysis. So he's like, look, I can look at my body as a collection of atoms or as a body or as part of the species. And all of these different levels of analysis are, are different and they make, they make the consideration of my body uh, mean different things. Is it, is it some part of this greater species? Is it, uh, you know, is it, is it some collection of atoms? What is it? The fact that we can look at things from these different perspectives, that's something that seems obvious, but what else can do that? Anything that you know of? Nothing I know of. It seems to be unique to us that we can look at, we can look at things from different levels than the, than the way that they appear to us immediately like looking at the table as a part of the earth instead of as a table sitting on, on you know, in my house. Um, so, so this is really important, this idea. Uh, and that what it does is it, it shows you the complexity um, of every object and every phenomenon. It's like there's a way in which we make it, and that's, what, that's the word he uses. He says we turn the object into something more complex. There's a way in which our consciousness makes the object more complex than the way it's immediately appearing to us. And that's not saying that it's wrong or untrue or false. It is that way. But we're just able to recognize it, that it's, that it's infinitely complex. So our ability to consider or to, to focus consciousness on different levels of analysis, it somehow makes the object only the thing that at that specific level. So, so I look at the table, and it's, it's the table. I consider the table to be a part of the earth, and it's the earth and I've made it that way with my consciousness. <laughs> and nothing else can do that but you and I, as far as we know. Wow. So our consciousness somehow determines what a thing is. 
or what its unlimited potential is limited to. Um, this, I think, is how subject and object are one, like Jordan describes in the Ouroboros, that our ability to control what something is is evidence that, what, that the object and the subject, me, are one thing. Otherwise, how could I make it something? Something like that. All right, and this is where Jordan gives a great example. He says, what is an iron block for man? What is an iron block? He says, shaped, it's a spear, and therefore food and death and security. Suspended, it's a pendulum, key to detection of the Earth's rotation. Dropped, it's significant of gravity. Reduced to its constituent particles, it's representative of molecular and atomic structure a part like the whole. The question might be more accurately presented, what is an iron block not for man? I mean, I, I couldn't do it any better. Um, amazing, amazing. So he's saying, look, to a human being, an iron block, if you shape it, it becomes a spear. And the iron block is not just an iron piece of iron anymore. It's also food, because I can, I can kill an animal with it. It's also death, because in order for me to get food, I have to see that, I have to cause that. And it's security. If I have to use it for protection, it, it keeps me safe. So now this iron block is not just an iron block. It's food and safety and death. And if I take that iron block and I suspend it on a string, now it's a pendulum, right? Now it's swinging from side to side. And what does that tell me? Well, now the iron block is telling me that the earth is rotating because that's why it's spinning like, like a pendulum back and forth. Or if I drop the iron block and hit the ground, now it's evidence to me that there's something called gravity that I never considered before. It's all of those things. And if I reduce it to its components, it tells me all about how molecules and atoms work because it's made of them. Amazing. This is, this is what he means about objects and phenomena being infinitely complex and about how consciousness participates in making it so. Unbelievable. He says, when an object is explored, its motivational significance is constrained. The question in mind determines, in part, the answer given by the object. Interesting. So when he says, when an object is explored, that its significance is constrained, and I would say it's, it's constrained by consciousness, the thing that's doing the exploring, the frame of reference that you impose on the thing. Um, and he said, and that's what, that's again, what he's referring to when he says the question determines the answer. It's like by changing the question or the exploratory goal, you change what you get out of it. He says, uh, the object is always capable of superseding the constraint in some unpredictable fashion. So it's always capable of becoming something more or something new, like we talked about. He says, this infinite potential finds its, its symbolic expression in the self-devouring serpent, the mercurial spirit of transformation, the spirit that draws interest inexorably to itself. That I love um, because of the last bit, because what it's saying here is that, is that the symbol of the hero or the this, the force of, uh, that, that draws your interest, you know, whatever that thing is, the thing that he's calling the Ouroboros here, he's saying that what it is is the spirit that draws interest to itself. And I think, I think this is a little bit of a maybe, a, maybe intentional, maybe unintentional Freudian slip for Dr. Peterson here because what he's admitting here 
is that what draws your interest is interest in yourself. So when I go out into the unknown and something's you know, appealing to me and I, and, I, and I go and I explore it, that what I'm exploring is myself, right? And I know that because what I get out of it, I'm, I'm, I'm putting into, I'm building my personality out of it. It's literally, literally myself. And I think that is just this close to the mystic intuition that consciousness and God are the same thing. So when consciousness goes out into the unknown, into potential, that both of those things, consciousness and potential, are the same thing. And that's exactly what the Ouroboros represents. Consciousness and unconsciousness as one thing. Amazing. All right, so he, he says, the residual mysteries that still accompany current being, which manifest themselves in the intrinsic attractiveness of the thing or situation, must therefore become the focus of active attention so that information embedded in them can be pulled out and transformed into subjective being and the world. And again, re- this residual mysteries he's talking about is that, is that latent information. It's whatever is left in the unknown that can, that can yet still come into being within yourself or, or in the world. And that's infinite. Um, but it does require harvesting, like he says, to go in and pull it out. But that's something that consciousness um, is, is absolutely necessary for. All right, he says, lurking in the background is an implicit, that is, unconscious ideal against which all insufficient present states are necessarily and detrimentally compared. And what he's saying here is that whatever future it is that we want to create for ourselves, um, that that is is basically us looking at the present, how things are now, and imagining how it might be better, and then working to make that better possible. And what Jordan is saying is that there is an implicit or unconscious ideal behind everything that's dr- that is pulling us along. It's, draw- it's drawing our interest. It's, it's participating in, in the process that, that continually creates the world anew and creates ourselves anew, and that whatever that ideal is, uh, that's the goal that everything is working towards, and it's unconscious. Um, he also says it seems that all the, the true beings must change, and that only that which changes remains true. And that's a reference to Heraclitus, a, a Greek philosopher, who said that you never step in the same river uh, twice. He, you know, he, he's the guy that basically says ev- everything changes. The more the more things change, the more they stay the same. And maybe, and maybe that is this implicit ideal, the idea that, that transformation, that constant and continual transformation, maybe that is the ideal. And that is, so, so the, the Terminator 2 substance, the objective reality behind being, that this is something that's constantly transforming. And maybe that explains why, why we and everything around us is constantly transforming. And maybe it explains why our instinct our most fundamental instinct is to go out into the unknown and explore and transform. Something like that. All right, so here's my conclusion, guys. And actually, let me read Jordan's conclusion because Jordan has a nice wrap-up paragraph in the, in the book, and it goes like this. The phenomenon of interest, the precursor to exploratory behavior, signals the presence of a potentially beneficial anomaly. Devout adherence to, to the dictates of interest assuming a suitably disciplined character, therefore ensures stabilization and renewal of personality and world. Interest is a spirit 
beckoning from the unknown, a spirit calling from outside the walls of society. Pursuit of individual interest means hearkening to the spirit's call, journeying outside the protective walls of childhood dependence and adolescent group identification, and returning to rejuvenate society. This means that pursuit of individual interest, development of true individuality, is equivalent to identification with the hero. Such identification renders the world bearable despite its tragedies and reduces neurotic suffering, which destroys faith to an absolute minimum. This is the message that everyone wants to hear. Risk your security. Face the unknown. Quit lying to yourself and do not and do what your heart truly tells you to do. You will be better for it, and so will the world. And that's how, that's how Jordan concludes Maps of Meaning. Uh, but here's, here's my take. Um, this, whole, this, whole, this whole two and a half hours we've been spending together here has been talking about consciousness, the thing that you and I are. So we're talking about the mythological character of the hero, and we're talking about how that, how that relates to our individual lives. Um, you know, and what we can learn from reading these, these stories, these, these, these myths about ourselves. So this is the way I want to put it here. In the final pages of Maps of Meaning, Jordan has a Freudian, Freudian slip of the mystic variety. Um, my eyes, of course, perk right up to it, even though Jordan might have intended it to go mostly under the radar. In a quote we already read, uh, he brings up the matrix of being. He calls it infinite potential and the self-devouring serpent, which he's done before. But here he adds the mercurial spirit or the thing uh, whatever it is that is responsible for drawing our attention, for making us feel interest. I'll read the quote again and ask you to pay special attention to the end. This infinite potential finds its symbolic expression in the self-devouring serpent, the mercurial spirit of transformation, the spirit that draws interest inexorably to itself. Okay, so here's what I'm getting at. The spirit that draws interest is the unknown, according to Jordan. The matrix of being itself, or God. It draws us in, even against our will. It pushes us towards the unknown, or at least to an unknown of our particular liking. When we harvest information from these experiences, which we use to build ourselves, our, our personalities, and our subjective world, but here's the kicker. Jordan says that the spirit that draws interest draws it to itself. You see, it's interest in the matrix of being itself. That the matrix is, let me start over again, this is a complicated sentence. It's the interest in the matrix of being that the matrix of being draws, right? Itself. Or interest in consciousness that consciousness draws, okay? What I'm saying, I'm saying that Jordan is recognizing here what the mystic experience recognizes. He is saying, like in mystic intuition, that you are consciousness, the knower. And what you are experiencing, the known or the unknown, is also consciousness. So this is subject and object together in the Ouroboros. This is how the spirit that draws interest draws it to itself. What you find yourself interested in or drawn to, what you choose to explore, is leading you to knowledge. And this knowledge is the world, but also yourself. 
Remember, we're talking about the world of your experience, your subjective world, the world as it is to you, the world you have built just as you've built yourself. You are the architect, and what you can build is limited only by your courage. Courage to face the unknown voluntarily, to face the unknown part of yourself, and to make yourself and your experience out of it. Just like the primordial creator gods we talked about, Pangu, Ymir, and Prajapati, who built themselves, uh, who built the cosmos, rather, from themselves. That's, that's what, we're, what we're meant to do. So what does this mean? What does it all mean? What is the hero's journey? What is the way for us to follow, for all to imitate? It's as simple as this. One, follow your interests wherever they lead you. This is the unknown part of yourself, the unconscious, the Ouroboros calling from within you. Two, face the unknown voluntarily and courageously in the face of fear. This will ensure that consciousness remains the guiding force and master of your other lesser instincts. And three, embody and integrate the information you harvest from your experiences. This will transform you continually into something forever new, something forever more capable and more powerful. The consequence of following this pattern is self-consciousness. It is the process of coming to know yourself, what you are. And this is, as Jordan has said, much more than you realize by a tremendous margin. What you are is the power capable of making the cosmos and yourself. The self-created, the unmoved mover, as Aristotle would say. You are subject and object together. You are one. Now to quote John Piaget again, knowledge does not begin in the eye, and it does not begin in the object. It begins in the interactions. Then there is a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject on one hand and the object on the other. And lastly, to quote myself, how pretentious, we are the experience that God is having. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties. But I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>